Israel says it will allow limited deliveries of fuel to Gaza more than one month into Israel's siege of the territory. Coming up on WBUR, we hear from Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu about his short and long-term intentions for Gaza. Today is Friday, November 17th. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also coming up in New York, the Adult Survivors Act opened a one-year window for adult survivors of sexual assault to file civil suits beyond the statute of limitations, but that window closes next week. And Massachusetts State Senator, who's also a National Guardsman, reflects on his time helping migrant families staying in motels, serving as homeless shelters. And the stories are absolutely fascinating, and it just you know, the resilience of, of fellow human beings, what they went through in their country of origin. It's 401 News Headlines and Wall Street Numbers are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Lakshmi Singh. Momentum's building in the House of Representatives to oust New York Congressman George Santos. NPR's Deirdre Walsh reports a vote is expected later this month on a new resolution to expel the Republican freshman following a scathing report. The House ethics panel found that Santos used campaign cash on personal expenses, like Botox treatments and purchases at high-end stores. It detailed other criminal offenses and referred the matter to the Justice Department. The committee didn't recommend a penalty, but ethics chair Michael Guest said the, quote, investigation is more than sufficient to warrant punishment and the most appropriate punishment is expulsion. Santos announced Thursday he's not running for re-election in 2024. He admitted lying about his background, but criticized the ethics probe. The resolution needs a two-thirds majority to pass. Deirdre Walsh, NPR News. Israeli officials say they will start allowing daily shipments of fuel into Gaza for the United Nations to use. The U.S. has been pushing for this the past couple of weeks. Here's NPR's Michelle Kellerman. According to a State Department official, Secretary of State Antony Blinken pressed Israeli officials in two phone calls this week to prevent a humanitarian catastrophe and allow in fuel. Fuel shortages have shut down much of Gaza's infrastructure. A U.S. official says Israel has agreed to allow in 140,000 liters every 48 hours, most of it for the U.N. to use for trucks delivering aid, as well as for the sewage system, desalinization plants, and hospitals and bakeries in southern Gaza. Some fuel is also meant for the Palestinian telecommunication system to restore cell and internet services. The U.N. says the needs are far greater. The U.S. is promising to push for more. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. On the final day of the APEC summit in San Francisco, President Biden says he and Mexican President Andres Manuel López Obrador have agreed to work closely together on multiple security threats to their countries. We're working side by side to combat arms trafficking, to combat uh, tackle organized crime, and to address the opioid epidemic and including fentanyl, which when we talk privately, I want to tell you about my great conversation with Xi Jinping on that issue. Fentanyl, a powerful opioid, accounts for a majority of the more than 100,000 drug overdose deaths in the U.S. each year since 2020. Mexico and China are the primary sources for synthetic fentanyl traffic into the U.S. Former First Lady Rosalind Carter has entered hospice care. The Carter Center has issued a statement saying that the 96-year-old who was previously diagnosed with dementia is at home and is spending time with her husband and other family members. Former President Jimmy Carter, who is 99 years old, began home hospice care earlier this year. The Carter family says it's grateful for the outpouring of support and is asking for privacy. This is NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some patients of Salem Hospital have filed a class action lawsuit over their possible exposure to infectious diseases during routine care. This week, the hospital said more than 400 patients may have been exposed to hepatitis and HIV while they received intravenous medications over the last two years. The suit accuses Salem Hospital and its parent company, Mass General Brigham, of negligence. A spokesperson says all patients involved have been notified and no infections have been reported. Massachusetts nonprofits that help people with opioid use disorder are supporting an announcement from President Biden this week. After his meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping, Biden said China agreed to take steps to limit the flow of ingredients that are used to make fentanyl. Dan Gates is CEO of the AIDS support group of Cape Cod. He says the news is a positive step. It's also important to look at how communities respond on a local scale. If you were to be able to tomorrow eliminate all fentanyl from the region, there would be a lot of people who are experiencing severe addiction to a substance that would need support and help. And so we really have to work on that level as well. The aid support group provides access to fentanyl test strips and to Narcan. That's the treatment that can be used to reverse an overdose. State regulators busted nearly 200 minors in their latest crackdown against underage drinking. The statewide step by the Massachusetts Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission took place between Labor Day weekend and Halloween. 135 minors were accused of possessing or transporting alcohol. Another 56 were accused of having fake IDs. The commission also says 16 adults were caught buying alcohol from minors. The average price of home heating oil in Massachusetts continues to drop. The State Department of Energy Resources survey puts the statewide average at 4.09 a gallon. That's seven cents a gallon lower than last week, a dollar 79 cents lower than this time last year. 62 degrees now. It's been a lovely day today. Should fall to the mid 50s overnight tonight. And then for tomorrow, winds could reach about 28 miles an hour. Bring the umbrella. It's likely to rain in the morning and for some of the afternoon. Temperatures in the mid-50s early in the day, but then in the mid-40s by sunset. For Sunday, sunny, bright, right about 50 for a high. This is WBUR. It's 407. WBUR supporters include FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Leigh. The series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Coming up, a rare stamp recently sold at auction for a record $2 million. We learn what makes this one stamp, known as an inverted Jenny, worth so much. First, what will happen to Gaza after the war? That's one question that our colleague Steve Inskeep put to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in an interview this morning. They discussed a wide range of issues, and we're going to focus on one part of their conversation, what the future of Gaza may look like. Steve picks it up from here. What do you intend to do with Gaza once Israeli troops are fully in control on the ground there? We have two um, main goals there. One is to uh, prevent prevent things, uh, this threat from emerging. For that, we need to demilitarize Gaza. And the second thing we have to do is de-radicalize Gaza. It's like, what do you do when you, you beat the Nazi regime? Uh, well, you uh, make sure that uh, Germany is not, doesn't arm itself again. And you also make sure that Nazism is uh, removed. Same thing you did in the victory against Japan. 
You know, you, you won the victory, but you then also made sure that there was a cultural change in Japan. We need a cultural change uh, in any civilian administration in Gaza. It can't be committed to uh, funding terrorism. It has to be committed to fighting terrorism. When you say any civilian you. administration, Prime Minister, that seems to be the question. You've said you don't want the Palestinian Authority running Gaza, which would be the other major Palestinian organization other than Hamas. You don't want them running Gaza. Who else is there? Well, first of all, anyone who doesn't share Hamas's goals and who doesn't share Hamas's inculcation uh, of uh, teaching children, Palestinian children, that Israel has to be destroyed, uh, and that's their goal in life. I mean, that's what the uh, the Palestinian Authority is doing in the West Bank. It's teaching children, Palestinian children, that Israel has to be annihilated. They pay for slay. They pay the families of terrorists. Uh, for the murder of Jews, and the more Jews they murder, the more they get paid. This is not the people who can uh, work for peace. And you know, almost 40 days have passed, and the Palestinian leadership of, uh, of the Palestinian Authority, President Abbas, has yet to condemn this savagery. Referring, of course, to October 7th, when 1,200 people were killed, according to Israel's tally. Throughout the interview, Prime Minister Netanyahu often referred to post-World War II Germany as a possible roadmap for what he called the demilitarizing and de-radicalizing of Gaza. Steve picked up that thread. The question, of course, is the United States ended up keeping troops in Germany for generations. That's where you're heading here with, with Gaza? Well, I'm not sure of keeping troops inside. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's not particularly necessary. Gaza is very small. So the overriding military responsibility has to be with Israel for the foreseeable future. Because once you eliminate Hamas, and we have to eliminate Hamas, we have to beat these barbarians, otherwise this evil will spread. And it is uh, a great danger to everyone. But once we defeat Hamas, we have to make sure that there's no new Hamas, no resurgence of terrorism. And right now, the only force that is able to uh, to secure that is Israel. So for the foreseeable future, Israeli overall military responsibility. But there also has to be a civilian government there. But you, but you haven't said who that civilian government would be, sir. Well, I think I know who it can't be. It can't okay. be people who are committed I to wanna, if uh, funding I... terrorism and, and inculcating terrorism. Let, let me say this, though. Very briefly, sir. That you had, you had this, we, we can give Gaza a different future. You say, how will this generation have a different future? Just the way the German people had a different future, the Japanese people had a different future, because you eliminated these toxic regimes, these tyrannies, these heartless monstrosities, and you replace them with something good. And what we need is something that is, we replace that with something that cares for the future of peace between Israel and the Palestinians, that cares to rebuild Gaza that cares to eliminate this terrorist tyranny that uh, subjugated the people of Gaza, I think that's the only hope for peace and the only hope for Palestinians. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu there speaking with Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep. Let's parse what he did and did not say about the future of Gaza with NPR's Greg Myrie, who is in Tel Aviv. Hey, Greg. Hi, Ari. So many references there to World War II. How well does this comparison actually apply to the current war? There are really a lot of differences, but actually there's a more recent Israeli war that does seem very relevant today. Back in 1982, Israel invaded southern Lebanon to drive out militant Palestinians who were attacking northern Israel. Now, Israel did push out those Palestinians, but in their place very soon after came the militant group Hezbollah. Israel then found itself stuck in southern Lebanon for 18 years fighting Hezbollah until Israel unilaterally withdrew in 2000. 
Today, Hezbollah is stronger than ever, and it's trading fire with Israel across its northern border. Uh, Israel does have the region's most powerful military, but it still needs to find political solutions, and the Palestinians say that would be statehood. And to that persistent question about what the civilian government of Gaza would look like, what are the options for who can run Gaza? Well, in short, Israel just hasn't provided an answer. You heard uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu sort of uh, evading Steve's question there. Netanyahu says Hamas will never be allowed to run Gaza again. He also says he doesn't want the Palestinian Authority to run Gaza. The Palestinian Authority runs the West Bank, but it's ineffectual and unpopular. And it even says it won't go to Gaza on the back of an Israeli tank. Ultimately, a political solution will involve Palestinians. Palestinians ruling Gaza, but Netanyahu seems to be ruling out the options that exist today. Well, whether or not the leader of Israel's government is willing to spell it out in an NPR interview, what does Israel seem likely to do? What what are they likely to be planning right now? So we've spoken to a lot of Israeli officials, and there's kind of this vague talk about having the international community come in and perhaps be part of some transitional phase. But outsiders just haven't shown any interest in in running the territory. Arab countries don't want to come into Gaza and serve as an enforcer. The United Nations does things like provide food and health care and schooling, but it simply isn't equipped to govern. So for Israel, the real risk is getting stuck in Gaza. Gaza, even if it decides at some point it wants to leave. And Netanyahu did not say a lot about the humanitarian situation. Can his government continue to resist international pressure as conditions in Gaza grow even more dire? This is going to be very hard because of these daily images of of the very real Palestinian hardship in Gaza. Already more than 11,000 are dead, tens of thousands wounded, according to Gaza officials. Food and water are increasingly hard to find. The World Food Program says Gaza is just getting a tiny fraction of the food it needs. There's a fuel shortage that's shutting down water systems, communications, hospitals. Uh, You see images of people burning wood in the street just to cook a meal. Israel is now going to allow enough fuel for the UN to run sewage and desalination plants. But this kind of piecemeal approach is, is not going to solve the larger crisis. So no matter what What happens on the battlefield, Israel is going to face sustained pressure to do more, much more, to deal with the humanitarian crisis. That's NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Sure thing, Ari. A first-class U.S. postage stamp will set you back 66 cents these days, which you know, might seem expensive to anyone who remembers cheaper postage. But a stamp that's more than a century old in mint condition and also happens to be a historic misprint, well, that will set you back a lot more than 66 cents. Well, the stamp that we sold for $2 million is the inverted Jenny, and it is the icon of stamp collecting. That is Scott Treppel, president of Siegel Auction Galleries in New York. And the proud new owner of that rare inverted Jenny stamp is a real estate developer named Charlie Hack. So what makes this stamp worth a record $2 million? The inverted Jenny is the error version of a stamp which at the time was very important because it was the first stamp for the 
world's first regularly scheduled government airmail service. At the center of the stamp is a picture of the kind of Curtis biplane nicknamed Jenny that would be used for this new airmail service. As postal officials rushed to print the new stamps in time for those first postal flights in 1918, a mistake was made. Some of the stamps were printed with the plane flying upside down, which Treppel says is understandable. Planes were still a relatively new form of transportation at the time. People weren't familiar with what they looked like, and so the inverted plane on the stamp slipped through the inspectors, slipped through the clerk at the post office, and uh, even he said, you know, look, don't blame me. I don't know what a plane looks like, so I I didn't recognize it when I sold it. A single sheet of 100 inverted jennies was sold before anyone caught the mistake. The stamp that was sold this week at auction was one of them. It's known as Position 49, based on its placement on that original sheet. So yeah, other inverted jennies do exist, but Treppel says this one is extra special because it's in really good condition after being in storage for decades. It had been held by probably three generations of the same owners and uh, hidden away so it never was exposed to light. The colors were beautiful, the paper was bright, the back of the stamp, the gum, had never been hinged and put into an album. Keep in mind, Treppel is a preeminent expert in this field. He says he's handled the sale of 66 of the 100 stamps on that original misprint sheet. And position 49 is tops, in his opinion. We grade stamps from 1 to 100 in terms of the uh, centering of the design with the perforations around it. And this one is a 95, and there is no better. There's no 98, there's no 100. This 95 is the best that any Jenny will ever get. Scott Treppel of Siegel Auction Galleries in New York. By the way, he says, stamp collectors wondered for years where inverted Jenny 49 was, so that mystery is solved for now. But there is still one more big question mark for inverted Jenny fans. There's still one stamp out there that was stolen in the 1950s. It was part of a block of four. Uh, There's still one. Uh, the upper right stamp of the block, which has yet to emerge from hiding, but um, one day somebody will try to sell it. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, Dolly Parton is a country music legend, but her latest musical effort is something different. We'll hear from her in about 15 minutes on WBUR. Stay tuned. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Mom, taking care of your business from startup to sale. Learn more at davismom.com, D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And Fresh City Kitchen, offering a thoughtful approach to catering your special occasions, freshcitykitchen.com. The major averages on Wall Street cruised to a third week of gains. Today, the Dow picked up a small fraction of a percent. S&P rose a little more than a tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq rose a little less than a tenth of a percent. The unemployment rate in Massachusetts remains below 3 percent last month. State officials say the jobless rate was 2.8 percent. That's up slightly compared to September, but more than a full percentage point lower than the current national rate. Officials say Massachusetts gained more than 77,000 jobs in the past year. This is WBUR. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans in the Northeast stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org cars. 
After a mighty fine fall day, we've got a mixed bag for the weekend. Tonight should be unseasonably warm, only falling to about 53. Rain is likely tomorrow morning, tapering off to sprinkles by the early afternoon. Some strong winds, temperatures reaching the mid-50s, then falling to the mid-40s by late afternoon. Skies clear up and dry up for Sunday should be sunny. Highs about 50 degrees tops. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. DATAIKU.com. And from your part time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including homeless shelters, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. There's a big deadline coming up on Thanksgiving in the state of New York. November 23rd, that's next Thursday, is the last day of a one-year window when adult survivors of sexual assault may sue their alleged abusers, regardless of when the abuse allegedly occurred. Earlier this year, that window allowed E. Jean Carroll to bring and win damages in a lawsuit against Donald Trump, which was related to an incident in the mid-1990s. The window also just allowed the R&B singer Cassie to sue her former long-term partner, the music mogul Sean Combs, also known as Diddy. Her lawsuit alleges rape and a pattern of abuse. A state law in New York known as the Adult Survivors Act, which was signed just last year, makes all of this possible. And here to talk more about that law is attorney Marianne Wong. She's represented many clients seeking justice for sexual abuse before and after this law was passed. And she's with us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Elsa. Well, thanks for being with us. So I am curious, how much are you and other lawyers seeing an uptick in clients bringing lawsuits under this law as this deadline is quickly approaching? There's definitely been um, a significant increase and a lot of people just calling and trying to find out what their rights are and, you know, deciding for themselves whether or not they want to pursue something. But it has been really um, a remarkable period of time. And do you have a sense of how much of a difference this law has made in terms of how many more lawsuits have been filed the last year compared to previous years when statutes of limitations could not be circumvented? There's definitely been a very significant increase in filings during this year. Many others are empowered to confront and threaten either their abuser or sometimes institutions behind that abuser to try to resolve the matter even before filing. So there are also a number of cases against institutions. So for example, there was a recent filing against Columbia University because there's a doctor who was employed by their healthcare system for years who engaged in abuse. For instance, under the Adult Survivors Act, many of those survivors were able to file cases against mm-hmm. Columbia. Can we talk about why this law was passed in the first place? What were the shortcomings that people saw and wanted to address by opening up this additional one-year window? The answer is really that it was it's a recognition that victims of sexual assault and survivors of sexual trauma were gaslit or told that they should let bygones be bygones. So for so long, the law had draconian limits on how women could pursue justice. And so even though that has changed over time and there has been an extension of the statute of limitations over time, this is a recognition that 
women from decades ago who may not have had the wherewithal or the understanding or were still so wrapped up in their own grief and shame and trauma. from the assault that they can now examine it and ponder it and consider bringing their perpetrators to justice and give them that power of that choice. Exactly. But is an additional just one-year window enough? You raise many, many important reasons why survivors of sexual assault struggle with coming forward. So is just adding on a one-year window enough to address that larger challenge? I don't think it is enough. I think that lawmakers do understand that there are a lot more considerations than just immediately requiring somebody to meet a deadline. And I do think that going forward, I'm hopeful that both New York and other states will be more understanding and either open more windows or change statutes limitations going forward. Marianne Wong of the law firm Cutie Hecker Wong, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. In Argentina, this Sunday's presidential runoff is like no other in recent memory. A far-right libertarian has shaken up the race. He sports a chainsaw at rallies and pledges to radically slash state spending and ditch the national currency. And then there's the incumbent party's candidate, the current economy minister. He's still in the running, even as Argentina's economy hits new lows and inflation soars. As NPR's Kerry Kahn reports, the polls are too close to call. Nicolás Reyes says it's time for a radical change. La dirigencia no ve la bronca de la gente. La gente está muy enojada. Those in charge just don't get how angry people are, says the 20-year-old political science student. We found a quiet corner in the cafeteria at the University of La Matanza, where he comes to study. The place is packed with students chatting and sharing mate, Argentina's famous herbal tea drink. Some are trying to read. La juventud argentina, debido a esta crisis, nos tenemos que dedicar a estudiar y trabajar. Because of the crisis, Argentina's youth have to work just to be able to study, he says. This is why Javier Millet is winning over so many young people, he adds. The far-right libertarian rails loudly against the status quo, building a loyal following through social media and rock music-infused rallies, with a generation of young Argentines left out of the job market and staring at a future stuck in their parents' homes. Me ha costado represalias, me ha costado peleas. Reyes says being a young conservative hasn't been easy, especially here in La Matanza, one of the 24 boroughs that make up what's called the Conurbano. This is the industrial and impoverished core of cities ringing the capital, Buenos Aires. It's long been a stronghold of the ruling Peronist party and stigmatized for its poverty, says Guillermo Galeano, who's 38 and runs an Instagram account called The Walking Conurbano. Son los habitantes del Conurbano, con su peso demográfico, los que eligen al presidente. He says don't underestimate the Conurbano, with nearly 12 million residents, about a quarter of the country's population and nearly a third of all voters, we elect the president. And although the Peronist candidate Sergio Massa easily won here in last month's primary elections, Javier Millet and his angry discourse has gained followers. That has Analia Bocella worried. I met her at a large park just outside the Conurbano. Está re lindo, los baños están limpios y es, es gratis. <laughs> It's pretty here, the bathrooms are clean, and most of all it's free, she chuckles. 
The single mom and elementary school teacher strolls past couples dancing tango, holding hands with her 11-year-old daughter, Muriel. She says it's a respite from the cramped tiny house they share with their mom in La Matanza. She's voting for the current Peronist Party's candidate, Sergio Massa, but not happily. Look, I'm really frustrated. I'm 43 years old and there are so many things I thought I would have achieved by now, she says, especially after working so hard for so many years. But as bad as things are, she's really afraid they could get much worse if Malay wins. Kids come to my classes hungry, in really bad shape. They're just steps from living on the streets, she says. They couldn't survive if Millet makes his drastic cuts. But Nicolas Reyes, the 20-year-old university student, says he hopes Argentines don't listen to the fear-mongering and vote for change. He says it makes no sense to keep doing the same thing. That's clearly not working. La batalla electoral está en el conurbano bonaerense. And he adds that battle between the same old or change will be decided here in the Conurbano. Kerry Khan, NPR News, La Matanza, Argentina. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR coming up. Dolly Parton rocks. We all know that, but now she's proving it on a new album. That's coming up in six minutes. And then at 5.50, the state senator, who's also a National Guardsman, he was stationed at some of the hotels for homeless families in Massachusetts. A lovely day to end the work week. It is now 62 degrees, should fall only to the mid-50s overnight tonight. For tomorrow, winds could gust to 28 miles an hour. It's likely to rain in the morning, then some isolated showers in the early afternoon in the mid-50s for much of the day, then by sunset could drop to the mid-40s. For Sunday, dry and bright, right about 50 degrees for a high. This is 90.9 WBUR. It's 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Burton's Grill and Bar, with scratch kitchens customizing dishes for guests with allergies or dietary restrictions. Eight locations in greater Boston. Burton'sGrill.com. And The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage, presents The Band's Visit, playing now through December 10th at the Huntington Theatre, huntingtontheatre.org. WBUR has invested in building a relationship with us over decades. I think about this as a way to repay that. If we're able to make a difference with our giving that lives beyond us is something that's deeply satisfying to consider. John Davis and his wife Margot are leaving a legacy to WBUR to ensure a strong future. You can too at WBUR.org slash legacy. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. In another repercussion of the war in Gaza, Jordan says it will not follow through on a planned energy deal with Israel. Jordan's government points to the killing of Palestinian civilians by Israeli forces, NPR's Jane Araf has more from the Jordanian capital. Jordan's foreign ministry posted video of Foreign Minister Ayman al-Safadi on X, formerly known as Twitter, saying Jordan would not now proceed with a planned agreement to send electricity to Israel in exchange for water. We will not sign an energy and water exchange agreement with Israel while Israel is killing our people in Gaza, Safadi said in an Al Jazeera interview. The deal, brokered before the war, was to have been signed last month. Jane Araf, NPR News, Amman, Jordan. 
Well, as summers and falls get hotter across the U.S., experts say outdoor sports and recreation are getting more dangerous. Grayson Wheeler of member station KOSU reports on what the fifth national climate assessment says about playing outside. The report, compiled every four years by the U.S. Global Change Research Program, shares details about how human-caused climate change will affect the country for the rest of the 21st century. This iteration of the report says school fields and city parks are ripe for heat-related illnesses. Climatologist Renee McPherson spearheaded the report's chapter on the Southern Great Plains region. She says the country isn't paying enough attention to climate-proofing its recreational facilities and public outdoor spaces. This is really an opportunity for a lot of people to think about climate change as something that can actually affect them personally. McPherson says communities that can't afford to build indoor facilities will have to develop contingency plans as extreme heat spreads across the calendar. For NPR News, I'm Grayson Wheeler. Stocks finished higher on Wall Street, closing out a third straight winning week. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Department of Education will investigate whether anti-Israel rhetoric has created a hostile environment for Jewish students at Wellesley College. As WBUR's Max Larkin reports, it's part of a wave of campus conflicts set off by the Israel-Palestine war. In a dorm email last month, residential assistants wrote that there is no space for Zionism at Wellesley. Two organizations told federal education officials that amounted to discrimination. Julia Jassy runs Jewish on Campus, which co-drafted that complaint. She says criticism of Israel is not inherently anti-Semitic, but that some pro-Palestinian students have crossed the line this fall. When you're demonizing an entire group of people, when you're saying that any Israeli living in this land is a settler who deserves violence, that dehumanization is where that line is drawn. In a statement, Wellesley leaders welcomed the federal investigation and condemned anti-Semitism. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Ridership on the MBTA's commuter rail has hit a post-pandemic high. T officials say ridership on the commuter rail last month was more than 90 percent of pre-pandemic levels. The Fairmont, Franklin, and Rockport-Newburyport lines saw the biggest month-to-month increases. The T says the jump is due in part to Halloween travel to Salem. The American Repertory Theater is getting closer to having a new home. This week, the Boston Planning and Development Agency approved a space in Alston for the theater company. The ART has long operated out of a location in Cambridge right near Harvard Square. The new theater is part of a major new Harvard University development in Alston. The complex includes a 68,000-square-foot performance center with two theaters, along with rehearsal and office space. And a Worcester-based home health care company is accused of defrauding Medicaid. Union Home Health Care Service faces charges of stealing more than $1.5 million from Medicaid. The state attorney general's office alleges the company filed false claims for patients for services that were never performed. The forecast is ahead. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by H&H. Take part in a tradition as Boston as Fenway Park. Handel's Messiah. Three performances November 24th through 26th. Handelandhyden.org. And Science Club for Girls. Growing the 4% of Black and Latina female scientists and engineers and transforming the face of STEM. Donate at scienceclubforgirls.org. Mild tonight, about 53 for a low. For tomorrow, lots of rain during the day, about the mid-50s for a high. Sunday, sunshine returns, highs about 50. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement designed by gastroenterologists to help relieve occasional bloating, gas, and abdominal discomfort. 
More at AlignProbiotics.com. And from BetterHelp, committed to supporting mental health through therapy. Clients are matched with one of 25,000 therapists and can communicate via video, chat, or phone at BetterHelp.com public. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Juana Summers. If you get nominated for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and you're Dolly Parton, you decline graciously at first. So I just felt I would be taken away from someone that maybe deserved it, and certainly more than me because I never considered myself a rock artist. When she spoke to NPR last year, she changed course. After she learned that the Hall of Fame isn't strictly for rock musicians, she said she'd accept if she were inducted. But Dolly Parton, country music all-time legend, she had to make some rock music to justify that honor. I just started recording songs that I thought would be great. And then before I knew it, I had 30 songs. I thought, well, i got to narrow this down. But the more I listened, the better they sounded. This is the first and only rock album I've ever been involved in. And so I just went for it. We got her back on the phone because today, Dolly Parton releases that album. It's called Rockstar. Like she mentioned, it is 30 songs, 9 originals, 21 classic covers, often with major stars of today or with the artists who made those songs famous in the first place, like Elton John, Joan Jett, Emmylou Harris, Stevie Nicks, or the remaining members of the Beatles. I asked her how she went about finding those collaborators. Well, I just one day I thought, wow, wouldn't it be great to have Paul McCartney on let it be. And then after Paul was on and playing, I thought, oh, wow, we got to get Ringo Starr on this. When I find myself in times of trouble, Mother Mary comes to me, speaking words of wisdom, let it be. So I just sent them a love note through their managers, and I just said what I was doing, and I said, I didn't want to put you on the spot, but I'd love to have you sing with me on my rock album. And if you're interested, uh, call me at this number. And all the people I reached out to said, yes, we'd love to. And I was very honored and very proud and very humbled by that. And I understand that your husband, Carl Thomas Dean, had a hand in the concept for this record. And I've been told that you picked many of his favorite songs on this album. Was there one that you were really particularly excited for him to hear? Yeah, I wanted him to hear my real version of Stairway to Heaven. And I had done a version of that years before. And he said, is that Stairwell to Hell or is that Stairway to Heaven? So I definitely wanted him to hear how I did it being true to form. If there's a bus or in your hedgerow, don't be alarmed now. It's just a spring clean what did your husband have to say when he heard this album? You know, it was so funny because I never have bothered him a lot with my music. And he's a, a hard rocker. I mean, that's always been his favorite music ever. And I've heard that all through the years. We've been together 60 years come this spring. But when I told him, I said, well, I've recorded my rock album. There's 30 songs. He said, 30 songs? And then when it was all over, he said, well, I have to say, that's pretty damn good. So... For him to say that would be like somebody else jumping up and down, you know, with pom-poms. That was all I needed to hear because I knew he liked it. 
There are so many incredible covers on this album, but there is one song that is not a cover that I want to ask about specifically. It is called World on Fire, and I know that you try to avoid politics in your art, but this song, well, it is clearly angry about something. How did it come to you? I wasn't angry. I was uh, fearful. I was worried and grieved about the state that the world is in, watching the world just burn down around us with all the craziness, all the war, all the famine, and the politics. You know, the, the great divide, I guess, is more what I'm talking about. And what it's even doing to families, even my own. It was not political to me. In that verse where I said, you know, don't get me started on politics, meaning, you know, the, the way we have to live, I might as well have just said, the leaders of the world, present and past, you better make a change and you better do it fast. That's what I was saying. And I thought that it would ease the hearts and minds of the few people that said, wow, that's exactly how I feel. I'm glad she wrote that. And if it does nothing more... And it's just good listening to think, well, I'm glad somebody at least said it. I want to ask you about another woman who appears on your record, and that is Miley Cyrus. The two of you have this incredible duet with Wrecking Ball. And Miley Cyrus is someone that you've not only known for a long time, but she's someone who we've all really seen grow up in the public eye, who's become a different type of performer. What was that like? Well, I've known Miley before she was even born. I worked with her daddy, Billy Ray, when he had achy, breaky heart. And before she was even born, he said, well, you got to be the godmother of, of this baby coming along. And then when she had her Hannah Montana show, she wanted me on the show as her Aunt Dolly. But then when Molly left the show, she was trying desperately for people to see her as Miley Cyrus, not Hannah Montana. So she had to go to extremes to do that. And I got that. I understood it. But Molly is such a great artist. She's a great writer. She's a great singer, a great actress. So Molly will always be doing something great. I mean, you are a household name and you have been in the public eye for so long between performing and songwriting and acting and charitable giving and now bridging genres. How do you stay true to yourself with all of that reinvention for all of these years? Well, that's why I am where I'm at and still where I'm at because I just am myself. I'm safe in being me because I know who that is. I know what a will won't do. I know what a can and can't do. But I'm able to, because I feel I have enough talent to back it up, I don't want to just be all hyped. You know, if I say I'm going to do something, I think about that and think, yeah, I believe I can pull that off. And so I'll continue to do that. I've been doing this for six decades now. All of these years and my life is still just trying to get up that great big hill of hope for a destination. 
realized quickly when I knew I should that the world was made up of this brotherhood of man. For whatever that means. Dolly Parton, her new album is Rockstar. Dolly, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for having me and let me talk about my rock album. And so I wake up in the morning and I step outside and I take a deep breath and wonder why and I scream at the top of my lungs, what's going on? You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Over the past two weeks, people have gathered in Washington for two major marches, one organized by pro-Palestinian groups and one organized by pro-Israeli groups, all in response to the war between Israel and Hamas. NPR's Elena Moore went to both of them to talk with young voters who stand more divided on this conflict than older generations. On November 4th, thousands of demonstrators gathered at Freedom Plaza, just minutes from the White House. They were there in support of the Palestinian people, calling for Israel to halt its military offensive in Gaza and pleading for President Biden to stop sending Israel aid. 23-year-old Prachi Javer stood in that crowd. She voted for Biden in 2020, but when she thinks about his 2024 chances, it's grim. Gen Z cares so much about human rights as a movement, and to have our commander-in-chief not actually follow through with that and not support that is really disheartening. She isn't alone in feeling that way. According to a recent NPR PBS NewsHour Marist poll, 50% of Gen Z and millennials sympathize more with Palestinians than with Israelis, which is much higher than any other age group. Plus, nearly half say Israel's military response has been too much. The war broke out on October 7th, after Hamas militants killed around 1,200 people, according to Israel, which says it's attacking Gaza to destroy Hamas and rescue hostages it's holding. Since then, the health ministry in Gaza has reported more than 11,000 people have been killed there. My entire family is in Gaza right now. Um, I'm from Gaza. I was born in Khan Yunis. All I know is Gaza. We moved That's 27-year-old Noha Adwan. She voted for Biden in 2020, and now she says she's ashamed of that choice. I think there's a split between whether or not we're going to be voting Republican or submitting a blank ballot, but Joe Biden will never, ever, ever get my vote ever again. Adwan's feelings are shared by other young people at the march, and it's something even more Arab and Muslim voters are wrestling with across the country, especially given both groups are reliable Democratic voting blocs. At the March for Israel this week, crowds chant in Hebrew, let Israel live. 21-year-old Josh Levin was one of thousands walking around with his friends. I feel like the Jewish people have always stood by every other minority group. And right now it seems like people aren't standing by the Jewish people. Over the past month and a half, Biden has met with both Jewish and Muslim leaders at the White House. It comes as the Justice Department has reported an increase in anti-Arab, Islamophobic, and anti-Semitic incidents. To 23-year-old Shandel Spitzer-Tilchin, she's thankful for Biden's response so far. I appreciate him standing up for Israel and understanding how atrocious and how scary this can be for college students, families, everywhere in the world, not, not even just Israel. Back to Josh Levin, he doesn't like talking about politics, but things are different now. He previously leaned towards the Democratic Party, though at this moment, he doesn't see where he fits. And as the grandson of a Holocaust survivor, he feels Israel is personal. 
the far left doesn't support Israel and Israel is an important part of like who I am as a person. Like, I, I, I don't know if I can really associate with that party anymore. And with less than a year until Election Day, it's unclear whether these divisions within the Democratic Party can be repaired or could further split voters before they head to the ballot box, where Democrats will be counting on their vote. Elena Moore, NPR News, Washington. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Thank you for joining us here at 90.9 WBUR. Prosecutors are tying former President Donald Trump to the violent events on January 6th, even if after he asked the court to remove that language from his federal indictment. That story and much more coming up in about 15 minutes. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Boston Foundation, knowing that bringing people together is the best way to advance opportunity and equity in our city. The Boston Foundation is a convener, a research hub, and a civic leader. The Boston Foundation. Move equity. Move Boston. Learn more at tbf.org. Tonight, the Celtics are north of the border to take on the Toronto Raptors. Boston's looking to improve on its 9-2 and record, tied for the best in the league. Tip-off time is 7.30 tonight, 61 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of museum-quality custom frames for individuals, artists, and businesses. StanhopeFramers.com. And La Cuchara Cafe in Melrose and now in Beverly, Latin American fair with a modern twist. Drop-off lunch catering for all occasions in Greater Boston. And Solar Gardens. Residents can support clean energy without installing solar panels. Learn more at solargardensma.com. In The Farmer's Wife, Helen Rebanks describes the simple, beautiful life she has on a sheep farm and all the hard work it requires. I've always known being a mum and a wife and working on the farm is important, but I haven't been made to feel like that by modern culture. Helen Rebanks and her farmhand, Nick Offerman. Yeah, that Nick Offerman. Saturday on Weekend Edition from NPR News. Start your weekend here tomorrow. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Some 7,500 families continue to be sheltered in Massachusetts' state-run shelter system, a few thousand of them in hotel and motel rooms. And Beacon Hill lawmakers continue to wrestle over a $250 million allocation to help them. Legislators ended this year's formal session this week without a compromise bill. One particular senator has seen the shelter crisis from the inside. John Velas represents parts of Hampton and Hampshire counties in Western Mass. He is also a member of the Massachusetts National Guard. Velas was among the Guard soldiers activated for two weeks to help migrants and other families at the motels. After 13 years in the Army, some of it in active duty, this was a far different assignment. You know, a typical scenario would be a family member might just have a question about food or an allergy or to let someone know that the person that they're living with is pregnant. And so, might, so might need a doctor's appointment? Like, would you m- transport might need, people? Exactly. M- might need a doctor's appointment. Another big one was, here's my paperwork that I got from immigration authorities on the border. I've got a court date in 2026. What do I do next? Hmm. And, and oh, by the way, how are we going to get there? If you made me describe the role of the guard, it's really kind of a, 
a social worker that does a little bit of everything. A facilitator is probably a more apt description. So when you were activated and you were in the hotels, you're doing this while you're serving on Beacon Hill. The issue of what's going to happen to these thousands of migrants and families in hotels and motels is very much front and center in the legislature. So what was it like to enter, say, a hotel room to talk to some of these families, knowing that you're doing it as a guardsman to provide for them, but also as a lawmaker who's going to vote on funding for them? I mean, the first thing that I was struck by was the humanity of it. I'd smile at them. I've come to really appreciate whether it's at a hotel in Massachusetts or in Kandahar, Afghanistan, a smile and looking someone in the eye goes a long way. There was this little boy who was older than my son. My little guy's about to be two, so he was definitely older than my son, Carson. But he came into this room where we all were, and he was kind of just moving around, and he was looking at this table where there was a bunch of granola bars and just treats, bags of chips and stuff like that. He was clearly hungry, and one of the other guard members gave him a granola bar, and this young little boy was just really struggling to open this, <laughs> this granola bar. He just couldn't figure it out. So I went up to him. He started biting it with his teeth um, and I and I just opened it for him. And that smile he gave me, to me anyway, that's real meaningful and special stuff. You say you also found out, by the way, that these people want to work. And that's one of the matters right now that the governor has been working on, uh, teaming up the state with federal officials to get migrants proper authorization to work in a matter of weeks instead of months. What convinced you? that they want to work, which would get them out of the hotels and motels. So invariably, I would say something along the lines of like, so what's going on? Anything I can do, anything we can do? And without exception, at every single hotel that I went to, it was, we want to work. We want to work. When I tell you that it was everyone, I actually mean literally everyone wants to work. So let me ask you this, Senator. You're in favor of this funding for the shelter system prior to the National Guard being activated and you going to these various hotels and motels. But what most informed you? What gave more gravitas to your argument on Beacon Hill because of your experience in the Guard? My main takeaway based on my time there was every decision that we should be making, right? Like our North Star, our guiding principle should be is, if we take this course of action, is it gonna make folks more or less self-sufficient? I can't stress enough how urgent of a conversation I think that is. Thank you very much, Senator John Velas. We appreciate it. Absolutely, you have a blessed day. The novel Finnegan's Wake by Irish writer James Joyce is known as one of the most difficult-to-read books ever written. It's so difficult that people have formed clubs all over the world to read it out loud together. And sometimes it takes years. One club, founded in Los Angeles, took 28 years. They finally finished the book last month, as Anna Scott from member station KCRW reports. Finnegan's Wake isn't just difficult. Many consider it unreadable. It doesn't follow normal storytelling conventions, you know, like consistent characters or a coherent plot. 
Instead, it's dreamlike, full of made-up words, puns, run-on and disjointed passages. It's a bit like trying to describe music, complex symphonic music. John McCourt is an English professor at the University of Maserata in Italy and president of the International James Joyce Foundation. For me, Finnegan's Wake is the perfect antidote to our times, where we live under the illusion that everything can be reduced to a tweet. And what the wonderful thing about Finnegan's Wake is that it reinstates the necessary complexity of human existence. It's almost like tripping on acid. This is the guy who's been reading this unreadable book for 28 years. Jerry Fialka is an experimental filmmaker who started his Finnegan's Wake reading club at a library in L.A.'s Venice Beach area in 1995. Fialka started the group partly because he never would have read Finnegan's Wake on his own. But he's gotten much more from it than finishing the book. I've gotten to encounter a lot of people who become my friends. This group has grown and shrunk over the years. Sometimes it's been as many as 30 people, sometimes 12. Some have come and gone quickly. Others have stuck around for decades, like Stephen Kudrowski, who joined the club around 2005. Now he lives in Chicago, but keeps up because the group moved to Zoom during COVID. Reading one page a month over 20-some years, I couldn't tell you very much about the plot. What you're really getting sitting down for an hour and reading one page is just really diving into the details of that specific moment. And even though the group finished the book in October, they started all over again last Tuesday. Because to Fialka, the circular structure of Finnegan's Wake means that it never truly ends. Back at the beginning, club members took turns reading a made-up word on the novel's first page. Baba Dalagarg, Takaminaronk. Baba Baba Garataka Mina Ronk. Baba Badalgarak Takaminaronkan Brontanaron Tuan Thurnuk. Switching readers every couple of lines, they read to the end of the page. And their upturned pike and point place is at the knockout in the park. Where oranges have been laid to rust upon the green since Devlin's first loved Livy. Bravo, that was brilliant, people. For the next hour or so, members dissected the words and talked about meanings and broader themes. Nobody claimed to understand it all. But Fialka says the beauty of reading Finnegan's Wake this way is that simply by plodding through it, readers experience flickers of insight. In the midst of something that seems complex, if it flips in the aha moment, you're like, wow. You'll have a, a revelation or what Joyce called so appropriately, epiphanies in everydayness. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. From Workday, an enterprise management cloud focused on providing organizations with a system to continuously plan for all what-if scenarios. Workday, the finance, HR, and planning system for a changing world. From Total Wine & More, where customers can find gifts for people on their list, from a Cabernet to single-barrel bourbon. TotalWine.com, spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina, available to adults 21 or older and from the listeners who support this NPR station.
And this is 90.9 WBUR. 60 degrees now in Boston. Winds pick up tonight. Should be on the warm side, about 53 for a low. Tomorrow, a whole lot of wet. A strong wind, temperatures in the mid-50s. Then for Sunday, sunny and dry. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Uncommon Feasts, offering full-service culinary event catering for your distinctive social and corporate gatherings. Gather around. Let's feast. And Live Nation. Presenting Belle and Sebastian at the Orpheum, April 27th, with support from the Weather Station. Tickets on sale now at LiveNation.com. I'm reporter Deborah Becker, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org, WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The federal election interference case against former President Donald Trump is taking shape. Prosecutors are likely to include testimony from rioters of January 6th. They have talked about the reasons that they went there, and almost entirely those reasons are because Mr. Trump told them to. It's Friday, November 17th. This is All Things Considered. More on the Justice Department's plans for the trial coming up. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, videos that express praise for a letter written by Al-Qaeda founder Osama bin Laden briefly went viral on TikTok this week, but how much truth was there to the video? And actor, writer, and director Tyler Perry has become a dominant force in Hollywood after he survived an extremely abusive childhood. Seeing his art and seeing what he grew up in, especially talking to him about his traumas, I think that's where his characters originate. More from the creators of a new documentary about Tyler Perry coming up. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. With nearly all the votes counted, auto workers at each of the big three car makers are on track to ratify new labor agreements. As NPR's Andrea Shu reports, the resolution comes two months after the United Auto Workers Union called an unprecedented strike. Over half of workers at General Motors and more than two-thirds at Stellantis and Ford have voted in favor of deals that deliver 25 percent or more in raises over the next four years. So that in and of itself is historic and record-breaking. Ford electrician Marcelina Pedraza says the extra money will help her pay off some bills. And she notes newer hires will see the biggest pay raises. Younger workers will hopefully be able to buy a house or go on vacation with their family or do whatever it is they want to do. The new contracts claw back some of the losses that auto workers faced around the time of the financial crisis when wages were drastically cut. By 2027, big three auto workers are expected to make around $42 an hour. Andrea Shu, NPR News. The judge overseeing the civil trial of former President Donald Trump has denied his bid for a mistrial. In a ruling today, Judge Arthur Engelhorn rejecting claims from the former president's lawyers. The proceedings have been tainted by political bias damaging Trump right to a fair trial. Among other things, the lawyer citing the prominent role of the judge's chief law clerk and the judge's rulings against Trump. The judge, for his part, said his rulings are his own, and there has been nothing that prevents him from presiding over a fair trial. The head of the U.N. Children's Fund visited the southern region of Gaza this week. She told NPR's Aya Batrawi about the trauma and desperation some one million children there are facing. UNICEF's executive director, Catherine Russell, visited the southern region of Han Yunus, where she says she met a 16-year-old girl who's now paralyzed for life following an airstrike on her home. Russell says she saw people crammed into hospitals and schools and makeshift shelters, as well as huge mounds of garbage because sanitation services have stopped. And 
all of this as people face bombardment and displacement and struggle to find clean drinking water, food, and basic health care. It feels a little bit like a godforsaken place. Like, there's just, you know, it doesn't feel like there's a lot of hope there, to be honest. And um, it was it was just very painful to see it. She says Palestinian families told her they want to return to the homes they've been forced to flee as Israeli ground forces battle Hamas. Ayo Botrawi, NPR News. The Republican chair of the House Ethics Committee has filed a resolution aimed at forcing a vote on the expulsion of New York Republican George Santos. The resolution, which was announced a day after the Ethics Committee released a scathing report, which included evidence that Santos converted campaign donations for his personal use, including trips to Atlantic City and the Hamptons. The freshman congressman has already said he will not seek re-election. Stocks gained ground at week's end. The Dow was up a point. The Nasdaq rose 11 points today. You're listening to NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. There have been nearly 300 fatal car crashes in Massachusetts so far this year. That's according to data compiled by the Massachusetts Department of Transportation. It says that is a similar to the number of vehicle deaths over the past two years. But Neil Boudreau of MassDOT says the numbers point to a concerning trend after years of decreasing road fatalities. Some of the things we're, we're seeing are, are poor driving habits. In particular, in vehicles, we're finding that a lot of unbelted um, fatal crashes and serious injury crashes are occurring um, where the individual is ejected from the vehicle. Boudreau says the state has recorded more than 105,000 crashes so far this year. Multiple people are injured after a shooting today at a New Hampshire state hospital in Concord. Police say a suspected gunman is dead and the scene remains active. An investigation by state police is underway at the state's psychiatric hospital. Several North Atlantic right whales have been spotted in the Gulf of Maine in recent weeks, including a mother and her 10-month-old calf. Nicole Ogrisco has more. The sightings come from the New England Aquarium, which says it also recently spotted a third right whale about 35 miles southeast of Portland. The aquarium is reporting the appearance of dozens of humpback whales and endangered fin whales in the Gulf of Maine this fall, along with an endangered blue whale in Midcoast, Maine. Scientists characterize the numbers as astounding and attribute the trend to a large amount of prey in the Gulf. The locations of critically endangered right whales are of interest to scientists because warming waters in the northern Atlantic Ocean have changed the species' traditional distribution patterns. For the New England News Collaborative, I'm Nicola Grisco. Boston Celtics take on the Toronto Raptors tonight. Tip-off is at 7.30. Bruins are off until tomorrow night when they host the Montreal Canadiens. Overcast overnight, 53 for a low tonight. Tomorrow, wet and windy. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Sunday, sunny, windy, right about 50. For Monday, sunny and cooler, down around 42 degrees. 60 degrees now in Boston at 5.07. WBUR supporters include the FDA. Its Remove the Risk campaign encourages people to dispose of the unused, unwanted, and expired opioid medications in their homes. Learn more at fda.gov slash remove the risk. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. The wait is over. After nearly two decades, the rapper Andre 3000 is out with new music today, and we will hear more from the album in a minute. 
before we get to that, the federal election interference case against former President Trump is coming into sharper focus. Lawyers for Trump had asked the judge to remove mentions of what happened on January 6, 2021, because they say it could inflame the jury. But prosecutors say Trump is responsible for the violence that day, and they're sharing new details about how they intend to prove that. NPR Justice correspondent Carrie Johnson is following the case and joins us now to talk more about it. Hey, Carrie. Hey, Elsa. Okay, so this is the case in Washington, D.C., right, where Trump faces four felony charges, including conspiracy to defraud the federal government. I know there's been a lot of back and forth in court filings. What has been happening? We're getting a preview of the battles that are going to be taking place in and out of court over the next several months months, and it's all centered on how rioters disrupted the peaceful transfer of power nearly three years ago at the Capitol. Donald Trump's lawyers say there's not a shred of evidence that he caused the mob to attack law enforcement that day. Remember, about 140 police suffered injuries, some very serious ones. But prosecutors say Trump is just trying to distance himself from all that mayhem. They say he directed an angry crowd toward the Capitol, and it was the culmination of his alleged conspiracy to overturn the election and obstruct the certification. They say Trump's actions on January 6th are important signals of his motive and intent. Okay, and how are the special counsel and his team going to try to prove that when this case goes to trial next year? Yeah, prosecutors offered some of the first clues about the shape of their case and court papers. They're going to use video evidence to show how Trump encouraged the crowd at the rally to go to the Capitol starting 15 minutes into his speech that day. They have testimony, photos, and geolocation evidence, essentially cell phone pings, to show that individual Trump supporters listened to him and then went on to beat up police and breach the Capitol. Another facet of this case is how Trump allegedly pressured his vice president, Mike Pence, to upend the certification. Mary McCord's a law professor at Georgetown. Here's what she told me about that. I think one of the most material uh, things that he did during that time was his 224 tweet about Mike Pence, essentially arguing to all of his followers that Mike Pence did not have the courage to do what needed to be done. And that was while he knew that the um, Capitol was under attack. Prosecutors say they plan to use testimony and video about Trump's words and how the mob chanted they wanted to hang Mike Pence Mm -hmm. after Trump tweeted about him. Okay, so there are some early clues from the Justice Department about how how they intend to structure this trial. What have you learned from Trump's lawyers about his defense? Trump's lawyers said in court papers this week that the former president called for the rally to be peaceful and patriotic. They blasted the special counsel in the Biden administration for prosecuting Trump while he's running to return to the White House in 2024. And they say they're going to file more court papers further along down the road to try to prevent a jury from hearing evidence about the violence the mob used at the Capitol on January 6th, beating police with flagpoles and bike racks. Trump's lawyers say most of the crowd at the rally on January 6th did behave peacefully. And and this trial is it's scheduled to begin in D.C. in early March, right? Like, how likely is that date to hold, you think? Trump is really trying to delay this case until after the election. The judge has been pretty firm about the March trial date, but Trump has signaled he may appeal certain issues if the appeals court and the Supreme Court weigh in. That actually could push back this trial. Huh. That is NPR's Carrie Johnson. Thank you, Carrie. My pleasure. Andre 3000 is best known for being one half of the legendary rap group Outkast. That's their 2003 smash hit, Hey Ya. The group's distinct sound made them stars, and Andre 3000's style, artistry, and lyrics turned him into an icon. Many a day has passed, the night has gone by. 
Till I find a time to put that bomb up in your eye. Total chaos. But these playoffs thought we was amps and we're taking another route to represent the dungeon family. Like but his new album is a departure from the sound that made him a superstar. All instrumental, no words. The album is called New Blue Sun, and he recently discussed it with NPR's Rodney Carmichael. Andre 3000 says he's always loved playing instruments, and it comes easier to him than writing lyrics, especially when compared to rapper Big Boy, the other half of Outkast. You know, Big Boy, he just kind of going down like really like he's he's so fast and like efficient with what he does. And I like it'll take me a minute to throw him down. So, you know, in these times, it's just it just comes harder for me to do it. He says the title New Blue Sun stands for the new direction his music is taking. He began by explaining why he loves the instrument at the center of this album, the flute. I'm happy when I'm playing. I'm, I'm exploring when I'm playing. I'm thinking when I'm playing. I wouldn't say that it's a set out meditation, but I do think you get into a meditative practice uh, for you know staying in the moment. So yeah, I'm, I'm very happy when I'm playing. I'm very mm-hmm. in the moment when I'm playing. Like if I was on the on the corner and somebody said, "Oh man, that's under three thousand man rap," it would it would feel so <laughs> weird for me to just start rapping. Yeah. But if somebody say, "Hey, play," what what does that sound like? I'm so gung ho to play. Like I love to play it. Like it's so. Yeah. yeah I, I don't know. It's it's just a completely different. Maybe because it's completely free. So let's get to the song titles because you got some <laughs> real clever wordplay going on with these song titles. I mean, they feel like part mind-altering and, and all, like, super humorous, um, but also really lyrical and, and, like, literary, you know, and long. Yeah, <laughs> they, were, they, were long. <laughs> they were long on purpose because I knew, okay, if this album has no lyrics, uh, that I would try to give as much, you know, thought or information in the titles. Yeah, I would really love if you could read some of them for starting with the first song title because I think it really addresses the elephant in the room right off top. For sure. So the first song, the, the title is I swear I really wanted to make a rap album, but this is literally the way the wind blew me this time. For me, like, I, I already knew how people would be looking at it, and I didn't want to, like, I didn't want to troll people. I didn't want people to think, oh, this Andre 3000 album is coming, and you play right. it, and like, oh, man, no verses. So <laughs> even actually on the packaging, you know, you'll see it. It says, warning, no bars. But also, like, this is true, man. Like, I, I love rap music because it was a part of my youth. So I, I would love to be out here rapping with everybody rapping because it's almost like fun of being on the playground but it's like, it's just not happening for me. So mm-hmm. this is the realest thing that's coming right now. Not to say that I, I would never do it again, but mm-hmm. the title, you know, I really wanted to make a rap album, but this is literally the way the wind blew me this time because this, this album is about wind and breathing. Do you find that you're able to say things through the music that you can't with words? Yes. Um, now that, you know, people are finally hearing it, uh, everybody has their own translation. Uh, and that's kind of cool because it's for you. You know, it's, it's your thing. You can have your own thoughts with it. I have my own thoughts. And one cool thing about flute, like whatever mood I'm in, if I'm playing, 
I can be saying anything. And, you know, it's for me. Mm. Like some, it's funny, like some things like in society, you can't say out loud, especially now, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's kind of like really sensitive about things, right. but you can say them with an instrument. <laughs> Let's jump to the, the, the track three. Um, if you can, if you can say the title for that one, that'd be good. Okay, so track three is titled "That Night in Hawaii When I Turned Into a Panther and Started Making These Low Register Purring Tones That I Couldn't Control." <laughs> was wild. <laughs> <laughs> now I ain't gonna lie, man. This this sounds like a straight up ayahuasca trip or that something like that. That is exactly what I was talking about. <laughs> okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, you gotta you gotta tell me the story behind this night, man. Yeah, I was I was actually in Hawaii, and it was my second night of the first time I've I'd ever taken ayahuasca. The first night was inviting and beautiful, and like the most powerful love and connection with all things I've ever felt in my life. Mm-hmm. The second night was different. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so the second night, um, my stomach was hurting my mouth contorted like a panther and I actually turned into a panther and I was doing like (laughs) and it holds you for so long I'm like where's this breath coming from and then you end off and you go (gasps) and do it again and I'm like whoa what is happening right now so that's what I'm talking about on that title was it scary at the time or was it like, how, how did it make you feel? At it was kind of in- intriguing at the time because, I mean, the, the, the sound listener in me, I'm digging the sound. But at the same time, the shaman is coming. He comes over and he's, you know, fanning me and, you know, he's saying, oh, that's like 20 years of therapy happening right now. What is it that you hope this this generation, you know, takes from this particular project and this this moment in your creative art? Explore, man. Explore. That's what it's about. Like, you don't have to stay in a certain way. And I think, I mean, the youth, they know it now. Like, if it, if it calls you, you know, test it. So I just really want to be inspiring for people and to look at it and be like, yeah, I want to explore. Andre 3000, speaking with NPR's Rodney Carmichael. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And thank you for listening to 90.9 WBUR this Friday afternoon. Iowa voters are proud of being the first in the nation to vote in a primary. But with Donald Trump seeming like a foregone conclusion, many don't see the point in looking elsewhere. That story and much more coming up in about 20 minutes on WBUR. On Wall Street, the major averages cruised to a third week of gains. Today, the Dow picked up a small fraction of a percent. S&P rose a little more than a tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq rose a little less than a tenth of a percent. WBUR supporters include Revision Energy. Sunbug Solar is now part of Revision Energy, a solar installer committed to fighting climate change in New England. SunbugSolar.com.
Amtrak is unveiling its new seasonal first-class dining menu. It's available on a cell of trains between Boston and Washington, D.C. The menu is part of a partnership with a restaurant group headed by James Beard Award winner Stephen Starr. The new food items include lobster mac and cheese, beef bourguignon, and Saint-Tropez salad. The forecast is coming up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Stanhope Framers, Back Bay and Somerville, celebrating 51 years of handmade museum-quality frames through sustainable practices. StanhopeFramers.com. And Comcast Business, providing gig-speed Wi-Fi to help take businesses to the next level. Comcast Business, powering possibilities. Turn your old car into new news. Support the programming you love by donating your vehicle to WBUR. Learn how at WBUR.org slash cars. Overnight tonight, cloudy skies. Tomorrow, wet and windy temperatures in the mid-50s. Sunday, sunny, windy, right around 50. Monday, sunny and cooler, down around 42 degrees. 60 degrees now in Boston at 520. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with Payback, a new original crime thriller from the creator of Line of Duty and Bodyguard, starring Grantchester's Morven Christie and Ozark's Peter Mullen. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. From your part-time controller, specializing in nonprofit accounting, helping nonprofit organizations, including homeless shelters, with their accounting needs. More at yourparttimecontroller.com and from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang. And I'm Ari Shapiro. This week, videos began circulating on TikTok, resurfacing a decades-old letter by al-Qaeda founder Osama bin Laden. This sparked fears that TikTok is radicalizing young people. When our reporters began looking into it, they found the story is not quite as simple as that. NPR's Shannon Bond and Odette Youssef are here to help us make sense of this social media saga. Good to have you both here. Hey, Ari. Hi, Ari. Odette, let's start with you. Um, What is this letter? What's in it? So this is a letter that Osama bin Laden wrote in 2002, uh, criticizing the United States, justifying the September 11th attack. Um, And it's replete with uh, anti-Semitism, homophobia, sexism, and calls for attacks on civilians. Really what it is, Ari, is a manifesto, uh, very similar to what we sometimes see from mass shooters. Um, But what's different is that this has been widely accessible online for decades. Um, And so in these videos, people were accessing an English translation of this document um, through the website of The Guardian. Um, And after traffic to that page on The Guardian's site went up, The Guardian pulled it down. And this was not a new page on The Guardian website. So, Shannon, why was this suddenly resurfacing after decades? Well, there are these questions about whether this might have been, you know, a coordinated campaign, but we just don't know enough yet. There's not evidence of that to say that yet. What we did find is one of the earliest videos we could find on TikTok about this was posted Monday by a user with under 400 followers. And like many of these videos, it was really focusing on specific portions of this document, critiquing U.S. support of Israel and blaming America for the oppression of Palestinians. And this is being very much presented through the lens of the current war between Israel and Hamas. And in these videos, you hear many users saying, you know, reading this letter changed their view of what they've been taught about U.S. history and foreign policy. Here's one of the examples. I'm thinking, like, you know, they're terrorists. Like, oh, my God. But who's really the terrorist? Who's really been out here terrorizing people? Who? 
But at the same time, all right, these videos, they're you know, based on a very selective reading of this document and ignoring a lot of what, you know, Odette pointed out, this really hateful stuff. In when it. I saw this first reported, a lot of outlets referred to it as a viral trend. What can we actually say about its reach? Well, it looks like this was initially circulating among some wellness influencers on TikTok. But what really seemed to launch it as a national media story was a tweet from an influencer on X, the platform formerly known as Twitter, rounding up some of these videos. TikTok says before that happened, there were less than 300 videos using the hashtag letter to America. And collectively, those had about 2 million views. Now, you know, 2 million is a lot of views. And we do know there were more videos not using that hashtag about this letter. At the same time, though, you know, the stock, which has 1.6 billion monthly users, this is not particularly high. So it's kind of unclear just how much reach this had. Um, we do know that after the tweet and the media coverage began to draw attention to it, TikTok says views of that hashtag jumped to 13 million. But, you know, ultimately, Ari, it's kind of hard to vet these numbers that TikTok's releasing or really dig deeper into where this originated because TikTok's really opaque. We just don't have a good look at the, the data inside the platform. Is TikTok doing anything to respond to this? Well, it says it's aggressively removing many of those videos. And, you know, we're seeing those come down, but also videos criticizing some of these earlier videos and news coverage. Uh, and the company is also blocking searches for the hashtag and the phrase letter to America. But, you know, this has thrust TikTok back into the hot seat, Ari. We already know there's lots of skepticism because of the app's Chinese ownership. And since the war broke out in Israel, Republican lawmakers and others have accused TikTok of intentionally boosting propaganda, pro-Palestinian content, and not doing enough to curb anti-Semitic content. Now, TikTok denies this. But I think it's important to note, NPR's own polling shows there's a real generational divide around attitudes towards Israel and Palestine. Younger Americans are much more supportive of the Palestinian cause, and that is TikTok's core audience. So what you saw here is this uproar over these bin Laden videos, you know, fitting right into this narrative about radicalization. Uh, back to you, Odette. Extremism is your beat. And so do you think there's reason to be concerned about the renewed interest in this letter? Well, you know, first, Ari, I think it bears reminding that when it comes to terrorism in the U.S., the most persistent and lethal threat continues to be violent white supremacists. Um, this is what we know from federal law enforcement authorities, and it's what the data show. I think what's concerning here is that so many people took this letter at face value without recognizing that it's propaganda, you know, that it's meant to justify mass killings, it's meant to inspire others to do similar violence, and that it contains lies. You know, another concern here is that we are in a moment of uncertainty uh, where people are deeply upset by the war, they feel powerless to change it, and they are receptive to explanations or narratives about why this is happening. Um, and so in these kind of moments of uncertainty, we often see that extremism and conspiracy theories spread. Um, I think finally, you know, there is a lesson for the media here about, you know, how do we correctly assess whether something's gone viral? Because if we amplify content without knowing that, we could risk further polarizing Americans. NPR's Odette Youssef and Shannon Bond, thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Support for All Tech Considered comes from Data IQ, a platform for everyday AI, dedicated to helping teams move beyond the lab to build generative AI applications at enterprise scale. D-A-T-A-I-K-U dot com. 
Thousands of Ukrainian children have been deported to Russia since the war in Ukraine began almost two years ago. A new report now says Russia's ally and neighbor, Belarus, is participating in these operations. NPR's Michelle Kellerman reports that the U.S. is vowing to hold anyone involved accountable. Yale researcher Nathaniel Raymond says he's documented what he calls an industrial-scale pipeline of child deportation from parts of Ukraine now occupied by Russia. This was concerted, it was intentional, and it involved both Russia and Belarus working together every step of the way. He's the executive director of the Yale School of Public Health's Humanitarian Research Lab, which gets funding from the State Department. Using open sources, the group found that 2,442 children between the ages of 6 and 17 have been taken to Belarus since Russia's full-scale invasion of Ukraine began more than a year and a half ago. The big mystery, Michelle, in this investigation is where are those 2,442 kids now? The Lukashenko regime claims they've returned to Ukraine, and we have not been able to independently verify that. Raymond says Alexander Lukashenko's government in Belarus and Vladimir Putin's in Russia should comply with the Geneva Conventions and register the children with the International Committee of the Red Cross. Some of the children were disabled and particularly vulnerable, he says, and about a quarter of them went through some kind of military training and indoctrination. The organizations involved here are really startling, including two motorcycle clubs, one called the Night Valkyries and the other the Night Wolves, and also the involvement of a senior official of the Belarusian Red Cross Society and also a swim club called the Dolphins. The report singles out some individuals who could land on U.S. sanctions lists. One top State Department official describes the child abductions as a, quote, hideous crime and says the U.S. will make sure anyone involved faces justice. The Yale researcher has been sharing his findings with the International Criminal Court. Michelle Kellerman, NPR News, the State Department. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up at 5.50, we'll hear how Israeli and Arab comedians and writers are grappling with the role of humor in a time of war. There is nothing like live radio. With the WBUR app, you can listen live behind the wheel, on a walk, or in the kitchen. Get the free WBUR app today. The forecast tonight should be windy and relatively warm, falling to just about 53 degrees for a low. Then for tomorrow, a rainy day to start, driven by a strong wind. The mid-50s for a high tomorrow, then falling fast by sunset. Sunday, sunshine returns. Temperatures right about 50 degrees. 60 now in Boston. This is WBUR. It's 530. WBUR supporters include Boston Early Music Festival with their Grammy-winning Chamber Opera Series on Thanksgiving weekend in Boston, November 25th and 26th, BEMF.org, and Goddard House in Brookline, an innovative senior community for those seeking meaning, growth, and purpose in each and every day, GoddardHouse.org. Listeners come to WBUR for insightful, fair, and balanced information. And this is just what we strive to offer our clients as they endeavor to understand the complexities of the real estate market. Lauren Holleran with Gibson Sotheby's International Realty in Cambridge, a WBUR business partner. We really believe when people have good information, they can make great decisions. Because of this, we feel so aligned with the mission of WBUR. For more information, email partnerships at WBUR.org. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. 
On Capitol Hill, efforts to oust New York Republican Congressman George Santos from office are heating up again, following the release of a scathing House ethics report that found the freshman congressman allegedly used campaign funds illegally to pay for a luxury lifestyle, including shopping trips, Botox, and designer clothing. The chairman of the House Ethics Committee has filed a resolution to force a vote on expelling Santos from Congress. He has refused to step down. A growing number of Republicans, including New York Representative Nick LaLotta, want Santos gone. Well, he should be expelled. Uh, what he has done is violate the public trust, engage in election fraud. Santos easily survived an expulsion vote earlier this month as lawmakers stressed the need for due process, but the ethics report has generated new momentum for ousting the scandal-plagued freshman. Israel's war cabinet has reportedly approved the entry of two fuel trucks per day into the Gaza Strip. NPR's Peter Kenyon tells us that move drew protests from some cabinet members, uh, ministers there. Minister Benny Gantz said the decision is a, quote, spot transfer approved for the operation of desalination plants and sewage facilities, as well as for international organizations operating in Gaza. Aid agencies have warned that the lack of fuel could lead to possible widespread starvation in the besieged enclave. UN World Food Program officials say only 10 percent of necessary food supplies have been reaching the Gaza Strip since the beginning of the conflict. Israel has banned fuel for fear Hamas will use it. The Israeli finance minister said the decision to allow fuel trucks in was puzzling and demanded that Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu, quote, stop this scandal immediately and prevent the introduction of fuel. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Jerusalem. Well, stocks finished modestly higher on Wall Street, closing out a third straight winning week. The Dow gained about one point. The tech-heavy Nasdaq up 11. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. Community nonprofit groups and legal aid groups are sounding the alarm as the number of unsheltered homeless families in the state grows. One week ago, the shelter system hit capacity, and the state started placing families in need of shelter on a wait list. As WBUR's Gabriella Emanuel reports, nonprofits are dipping into their emergency funds to pay for food, sleeping bags, cots, and motel rooms for families. Adam Houle from Greater Boston Legal Services is working with one family that includes a 14-year-old and a 7-year-old. He says they've been searching for a place to stay for the weekend. Right now, the plan is for all four of them to sleep on the street. So far, the family has bounced between emergency rooms Logan Airport and the state's Family Welcome Center. The mom says her family has barely eaten. Really, all she's had is the pieces of bread that she's been breaking into little bits and giving her kids throughout the day because they're hungry. The state agency overseeing the shelter system says it's created a fund to help community groups stand up overflow sites for waitlisted families. But it's a work in progress. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Gabriella Emanuel. Brookline Town Meeting has narrowly approved a home rule petition that would allow the town to impose rent control and tenant eviction protections. Town Meeting member Alec Lebovitz says if the legislature approves, rents would be capped on apartments between 3 and 7 percent annually, depending on inflation. He says there are some exceptions. We exempt newly constructed units for the first 15 years after their construction. We exempt any government-owned units or any voucher program units. We exempt dormitory-style housing and hospital housing. Uh, and we also have exemptions for smaller owner-occupant landlords. Brookline joins Boston in seeking legislative approval to implement rent control, which was outlawed statewide in 1994. State transportation officials are hoping to ease traffic congestion around Thanksgiving time. They say the Sumner Tunnel will remain open both this weekend and next, 
MassDOT is also postponing construction work for a week on major state roads. The MBTA is adding Silver Line service to and from Logan from tomorrow through November 26th. The forecast is ahead. WBUR supporters include Brookline Bank, where financial solutions are crafted to the needs of your business and delivered with a hands-on approach committed to your success. Learn more at brooklinebank.com, member FDIC, and UMass Chan Medical School, advancing medicine, nursing, and science together. More on their culture of collaboration at umassmed.edu together. 60 degrees now in the Boston area. Should stay about 60 overnight tonight. Winds picking up. Tomorrow, a whole lot of wet. A strong wind. Temperatures in the mid-50s. And for Sunday, sunny and dry, right about 50 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 60 degrees at 535. Support for NPR comes from this station. And from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution for businesses of all sizes to attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one platform. Learn more at Indeed.com slash NPR. And from Columbia Pictures and Apple Original Films, presenting Napoleon. Directed by Ridley Scott and starring Joaquin Phoenix, Napoleon tells the story of Napoleon Bonaparte's rise to power, exclusively in theaters Thanksgiving. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. If there's a main takeaway from the new documentary Maxine's Baby, the Tyler Perry story, it's that Perry's story is like nothing else in Hollywood history. The thing that's amazing about Tyler is he broke every rule. He is an actor, writer, director, producer, I'm going to say it, entertainment mogul. The film chronicles Perry's life, from childhood abuse to finding success on the black theater circuit, which then translated to the TV and movie screens, telling stories of family strife and redemption to underserved black audiences. But the film also acknowledges the division in those audiences, where some saw comforting tributes to the black family and church, others saw offensive stereotypes. The film's writer, producer, and co-director is Galila Bekele. She's also Tyler Perry's former partner and shares a child with him. And when I spoke with Bekele recently, along with her co-director, Armani Ortiz, I asked her if it was a challenge to film a documentary about a man she already knew so well. In this case, you know, of course, I started this with a loving gaze of really admiring Tyler for his vision and what he's doing. Mm -hmm. Of course, the challenge is for me to take myself out of it. You know, I had to really make sure I'm looking at this lens as if I don't know him. Was that possible? I had to make it possible. And that also meant, you know, us diving deep and understanding his fan base and why Mm -hmm. his work resonates so much with them, as well as inviting his critics to really share their perspective and why they criticize his work. Well, let's talk more about that. I do want to get into why Perry's work has divided audiences, including black audiences. Let's start with probably his most well-known and iconic creation, and that is the character Medea. Who are you? Who are you? I'm the owner of this house. Wrong answer. My granddaughter Helen is the owner of this house. You you ain't got no power or no deed. Did you do this? This is Vera Wang. Who that is? She do nails? I need to get my nails did. That's it. I'm calling the police. I ain't scared no popo. Call the popo. 
Okay, depending on who you talk to, Medea, you know, she's either a tribute to a black Southern matriarch or a crass caricature of that same thing, right? A writer at The New Yorker, Hilton Owls, once said this about Medea on our air. She really is part of this tradition that has always been a sort of entertainment staple. Loudmouth, presumably strong, but slightly ditzy black woman who whose comedy is really based on the fact that she doesn't really know what she's doing half the time. But Perry, he has called Medea a tribute to his own mother, a character who gives comfort and wisdom. So let me ask you both this. How do you see this whole debate about Medea and what she represents? You know, when I first started and Galila, you know, brought me onto the project, I never saw one of his plays live. So we would go to like, I'm a New York City kid, and we would go to Shreveport, we would go to North Carolina, all these places where I personally have never gone to. And to see what that character Medea does for that audience, how people see themselves, they see their history and they see their family members in there, it's supposed to invoke a feeling from you. And specifically in the documentary, me and Galila wanted to give that type of transparency to both sides of the story. That way the audience can see the motivations behind uh, the, the beautiful and iconic character that is Medea, and then also why people feel a certain type of way. So we definitely wanted to show both. Do you think some of that criticism of Medea and what she represents is fair? Can you see it? Do you get where that criticism is coming from? I mean, I, I think it's misunderstood, you know, when someone is dismissing Medea as a ditzy character. I, I don't see that at all. I mm. think I see someone who's self-taught, who a lot of maybe people who come from academia may look down on her because she might not have the, the degree that they have. Um, but I see someone who sort of made a way for herself and protects, and in this case from the clip, um, you just played, um, you know, she's going there to protect her niece, you know, who's pushed out of her own home. Well, beyond Medea, I, I do want to talk about the way Perry writes other Black women characters in his stories. Like, you will often find Black women in his films who are in abusive relationships or who have experienced trauma at the hands of Black men. And there are some critics who feel that Perry has leaned too much into depicting the suffering of Black women. What do you say to that? I would say that that's what he grew up in. Mm -hmm. You know, as artists, we all we all draw from the environments that, you know, have inspired, motivated us, either helped or harmed us, right? And so when you see, and he says it himself, the first 10 films that he did was a letter to his mom to say, hey, you can leave this. It can be better. Like we can, we can try to get out of this situation. And so him seeing his art and seeing what he grew up and especially talking to him about his traumas, I think that's where his characters originate from, you know? You see the abuse that he suffered at the hands of the father figure in the family and the abuse his mother suffered as playing out in the way he depicts black women in his stories. Well, not necessarily only depicts, but I think it touches on those subjects, you know, those experiences. Um, he sort of has a, a way of 
including serious matters and serious conversations, but it could be a comedy, you know, I, I think it makes it a little bit of um, a softer ground to have those conversations without it feeling extremely heavy. And I think also there is a lot of focus on the trauma. I think when we're seeing his work, oftentimes I hear his critics only focusing on one thing only and missing the whole picture. Well, how would you describe the full scope or the full body of his work if you were to sum it up? I think he, you know, like many artists, from when you look at his work from the beginning until now, there's a lot of growth. There's a, little, a lot of expansion. There's a, a, a bigger conversations, whether it's in marriage, whether it's in workplace, whether it's, you know, from the TV show. So it's expanded a lot more than the conversations that we're having. And I think what we found out as the filmmakers in this case is there's so much love for his work and appreciation. And there are critics, of course, who criticize his work, but the critics were, were a lot louder than the fans. And we missed why his fans really gravitate towards his work, because he speaks to them. Galila Beck-Ele and Armani Ortiz. Their new documentary is called Maxine's Baby, the Tyler Perry story. Thank you both so much for being with us. Thank you. Thank you. We appreciate it so much. Listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Iowa Republican voters are still standing with former President Donald Trump, even after their very popular Governor Kim Reynolds endorsed Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and said Trump couldn't win. Trump is so far ahead that many Iowa voters in the GOP see it as a done deal and are starting to feel apathetic about the upcoming caucuses. NPR's Franco Ordonez took a walk around Buffalo, Iowa, to talk with people about how they're feeling. Darla Chaddock is shaking her head just a bit as her friend worries that people won't vote for former President Donald Trump next year because of his poor bedside manner. Chaddock disagrees. I don't care what he did or what he says. This country was better off. Her friend Michelle Stone holds up her hand to let her finish. I, I can't disagree with her at all. But my heart just tells me that we, we, have, we could have a chance to lose. And, and I, I would love to have him. But sometimes I think, well, maybe we need another Republican in there to win. They're at a bar with their husbands in this small riverfront community of Buffalo, Iowa. It's a family town where some neighbors own chickens and the kids play marching band on the streets. Stone brings up the Iowa governor who endorsed the Florida governor, Ron DeSantis. And I love our governor, Kim Reynolds, and she's back in DeSantos. And I think we would have a better chance of getting a Republican in there with him. Chaddock loves Kim Reynolds, too, but she's not swayed. She's the best for Iowa. I think Trump being a businessman is the best for the United States. It's a debate that is playing out across this little town of about 2,000 people where the trains almost serve as a soundtrack to the town. 
Mary Moore is a registered Democrat on the local city council. She says the neighborhood is pretty split between those who love Trump and those who don't. But even if in my own family, I know uh, we've got big Trump supporters and anti. It's more Trump or anti-Trump than Trump or Biden. You know what I'm saying? Moore has been watching the Republican race and was herself leaning towards supporting Tim Scott until he dropped out. But she emphasizes that those who love Trump really love him and will go out of their way to support him. And she doesn't think there are nearly enough other voters to stop him from winning the nomination. It certainly seems like right now that's who will win the Republican nomination, but I don't want it. She's not alone. There is an apathy among many in town about the primaries. Her neighbor John McBride feels the apathy. He thinks Trump has the nomination wrapped up, something he's trying to convince his wife as well. I walked in last night. My wife was uh, watching the debates, and I said, Honey, why are you wasting your time? And she goes, Well, what if Donald Trump ha has a heart attack? McBride is pretty sure that's not going to happen, but... I mean, it just seems like it's a done deal. It's not even close. Around the corner, Joe and Alicia Bartelson are taking a second look at DeSantis after the Reynolds endorsement. I've always liked DeSantis. I mean, he kind of like Trump says what's on his mind, and that's I feel how most of the working class people are. I'm going to tell you what's on my mind. I'm not going to give you a line of bull. But that doesn't mean they're ready to support him before the caucuses. Her saying that, you know, makes me want to, you know, look into more, know more about him. Um, but as, of, as it stands right now, Trump will get our vote. And that's how a lot of people here in Buffalo feel. It's also how a lot of Iowa feels. Franco, Ordonez, NPR News, Buffalo, Iowa. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. Start your weekend with 90.9 WBR tomorrow. School board candidates who were endorsed by the conservative group Moms for Liberty suffered big losses in last week's elections. Find out who is in the grassroots movement that's pushing back. That's tomorrow morning right here at 90.9 WBUR. WBUR supporters include the Boston Philharmonic. Benjamin Zander leads Shostakovich, Britton, and Bartok with pianist Benjamin Hockman tonight at Symphony Hall, bostonphil.org. And Clark, where you can experience Sub-Zero and Wolf appliances with a personal consultant to make informed selections for your home. Details at clarkliving.com. Tonight, the Boston Celtics are north of the border to take on the Toronto Raptors. Boston is looking to improve its 9-2 and record, tied for the best in the league. Tip-off time is 7.30 tonight. Should be a windy night tonight, somewhere around 60 degrees for a low. That's just about where it is right now, in fact. And for tomorrow, a strong wind should be rainy. Temperatures in the mid-50s, sunny and dry on Sunday. WBUR supporters include Stepping Stone, directly supporting Boston students since 1990, and until all have access to earn a college degree. Learn more at steppingstone.org. On last week's Wait, Wait, Skylar Higley was very excited about Amazon offering health care to its Prime members. Oh, I love the Amazon Basics kidneys. We're transplanting ourselves this week to Portland, Maine, and talking to the CEO of L.L. Bean, because of course we are. Join us for the News Quiz from NPR. Saturdays and Sundays at 10 on 90.9 WBUR. 
From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. What is the role of humor at a time of war? Well, that's a question Israeli and Arab comedians and writers are grappling with now during the Hamas-Israel war. NPR's Daniel Estrin reports on the ways they're embracing satire to express their grief and anger, often with language that makes audiences pay attention. Israel's version of Saturday Night Live is Eretz Nehederet, a wonderful country. It was two and a half weeks into the war before the show producers felt ready to go back on TV with humor. The opening sketch is an officer calling up troops. Anarchists? Netanyahu supporters? Traitors? Racists? The joke's on themselves. It takes a war for Israelis to set aside their bitter rivalries. Executive producer Muli Segev convened his writer's room the day after Hamas attackers killed around 1,200 people. Some of his staff's relatives were killed. It was like a support group. We knew that if we would let ourselves, you know, sink into despair and, and be depressed, it would be very, very hard to, you know, to, to come out of. The Israeli satire show is usually known for its liberal politics and irreverent mocking of the government. For their first show during this war, they were cautious. We limit ourselves to uplifting materials and maybe, you know, a little anger to the enemy and to the (laughs) foreign press. (laughs) The show had a sketch mocking a BBC broadcast. Good evening from London. Here are some news from the war in Gaza. Many Israelis think foreign media coverage of the war has been biased against them. With more details, our Middle East correspondent... Harry Whitegilt. Good evening, Rachel, from the illegal colony of Tel Aviv. Another sketch criticized Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu for not taking responsibility for failing to prevent the Hamas attack. But Segev says the show is not ready to push the envelope too much, with Israelis still traumatized and fighting. There will be a time for the debate and for the agenda, but right now we just like first aid for our people. In Gaza, dark humor has always helped Palestinians survive between the wars. But now there is no comic relief, with more than 11,000 people killed in Israeli bombings and fresh horrors every day, food and water running out, people spending their days trying to survive. Outside Gaza, one Arabic website is employing satire. For the past month, we've produced so many things, and I don't think any of it was funny. Palestinian Isam Arakat runs a popular site with other Arab writers around the region. It's called Al-Hudud, or The Limits. It's a spin-off of The Onion. He says their satire challenges narratives. I think it's been the most difficult month of my life. Starting with the most shocking thing that still prevails today, like the dehumanization of Palestinians to levels that I haven't seen before. The site has a picture of the German chancellor, with a satirical headline, we'll deal with the guilt after the Palestinian genocide is over. I think one of the best things about satire is it encapsulates the issue at hand and shows what's the problem with it in one package. So it kind of, it simplifies quite complex issues. Another headline takes aim at the deeply unpopular Palestinian president, Mahmoud Abbas, The U.S. wants his government to take control of Gaza after the war. The satirical headline reads, Abbas refuses to return to Gaza on the back of an Israeli tank unless Israel offers him a ride. 
Well, joining me now to discuss the conflict in Israel and Gaza is a TV host and satirist, Bassam Youssef. The Egyptian uh, comic was on uh, Piers Morgan's show recently with sardonic humor about um, his wife, who has family uh, in Gaza. Know, just like those Palestinians, they're very dramatic. Ah, Israel killing us. Uh, but they never die. I mean, they always come back. You know, they're, they're very difficult to kill, very difficult people to kill. I, I know because I'm married to one. Mm. I tried many times, couldn't kill her. <laughs> I mean, there's a dark humor there, and I understand why. Because no, it's not dark humor. I really, I try to get to her every time, but she uses our kids as human shields. I can never take her out. <laughs> you can hear how startled Piers Morgan is with Yusuf's brand of humor laced with rage. There's one Israeli writer with a different approach. My name is Hena uh, Vigdori. My job is a screenwriter. I uh, mostly do comedy, sitcoms, satire, things that make people laugh. His extended family came under attack October 7th. Eviatar and Lilach. Eviatar, what's his last name? Kipnis. Hena, I'm, I think we were in their home. Wow. We happened to walk through the Kipnis family home in Kibbutz Be'eri a few weeks ago. This is the Kipnis family. Hamas attackers had destroyed the house. The walls were charred. There was a smell of blood. Things were strewn everywhere. 65-year-old Eviatar Kipnis. You can see the disability card here. And you can see in the bedroom here, there's his walker and, uh, and a brace for his leg. He was one of three of Avigdori's relatives who were killed. Seven relatives are now hostages in Gaza, including Avigdori's wife and 12-year-old daughter. And yet, recently he was asked to help produce an emergency talk show for Israeli TV to help lift up spirits. They thought about it for like 10 minutes, and I said, yeah, I can do things in the show that are benefit to the main cause of my life now which is to bring back my girls. And there are also a therapeutic value to it. The show is called Strong Together. It aired about a month into the war. He says there were laughs and tears. I asked him if it wasn't too soon for the laughs or too callous when Palestinians are still getting killed in Israeli bombings. Nobody should ever joke about what happened, not to the Israeli, and not to the Palestinians. But you have to see the little things that could make us laugh because otherwise there is only crying, there is only pain. Chena Vigdori says what's helping him cope these days are the sitcoms he and his son watch together. He says laughing makes his life more bearable. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Big dig. Those three words can still send shivers down the spines of folks who lived in Boston in the 1990s and 2000s. It was a huge infrastructure project, a moonshot idea to bury elevated highways underground and beautify the city. But it took forever, jammed up traffic for ages, and cost astronomical amounts of money. The construction itself took 16 years, right? And the earliest estimates of the cost are in the two-ish billion dollar range. That grows and grows and grows for many reasons. And by the time it's done, the full budget of the project is almost $15 billion. 
We'll talk with Ian Cross of member station GBH News in Boston about the new podcast, The Big Dig. Is it a cautionary tale about big dreams run amok, or is there more to it? That's on tomorrow's All Things Considered. Thank you for listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from FX, presenting Fargo from creator Noah Hawley and starring Juno Temple, John Hamm, and Jennifer Jason Lee. This series returns on November 21st on FX, streaming on Hulu. From the NPR Wine Club, where members can explore wines from around the world, and every purchase supports NPR's high-quality journalism. Available to adults 21 or older, nprwineclub.org. From the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, its Secure Our World program is aimed at encouraging people to recognize and report phishing. More at cisa.gov slash secureourworld. And from listeners like you, who donate to this NPR station. And this is WBUR. 59 degrees in Boston should stay that mild through the night tonight. Tomorrow, hang on to your hat. Winds could reach 28 miles an hour and bring the umbrella. It's likely to rain for much of the morning in the mid-50s for the bulk of the day. Then by sunset, could drop to the mid-40s. For Sunday, dry and bright, right about 50 for a high. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Ocean State Job Lot, partnering with customers to help veterans stay warm by giving coats to those in need. OceanStateJobLot.com And Weston Nurseries. Tis the season to visit for holiday trees, greens, ornaments, and home decor. Hingham, Hopkinton, and Chelmsford or online at WestonNurseries.com. I'm Chief Content Officer Victor Hernandez. This is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston. 92.7 WBUA Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The Israeli military says troops will advance to anywhere in Gaza Hamas can be found. As for what happens after the war? Once we defeat Hamas, We have to make sure that there's no new Hamas, no resurgence of terrorism. Israel's Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu coming up. It's Friday, November 17th, and this is All Things Considered. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead in New York, the Adult Survivors Act opened a one-year window for adult survivors of sexual assault to file civil suits past the statute of limitations, but that window closes next week. The rare inverted Jenny stamp that sold for a record $2 million. Also tonight on Marketplace, how Apple plans to make it easier to text between iPhones and Androids. It's 6.01. News headlines and Wall Street numbers are coming up. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. The main telecom provider in Gaza is announcing what it calls a partial restoration of services. Landlines, cell phones and Internet have all been down there for the past two days because of fuel shortages under an Israeli blockade. Here's Lauren Frey reports from Tel Aviv. In a message on social media, Gaza's main telecom provider says it's received a limited quantity of fuel to restart its generators. It says the fuel came through the United 
United Nations and that service continuity depends on receiving fuel regularly. Israel had barred fuel deliveries to Gaza since the start of the war, a move aimed at keeping fuel out of the hands of Hamas. For weeks, the U.S. has been pushing Israel to change that. And now Israel says it will allow very minimal daily shipments, but only for the U.N. and communication systems. The U.N. and aid agencies say this is still only a fraction of what they need for life-saving operations in Gaza. The U.N. has already had to halt deliveries of food aid and is warning of widespread starvation. Lauren Fryer, NPR News, Tel Aviv. Prosecutors in Georgia are proposing August 5, 2024 as the start date for a trial in the election interference case against former President Donald Trump and his co-defendants. Georgia Public Broadcasting Stephen Fowler has more. Fulton County District Attorney Bonnie Willis says August 5th balances the speedy trial needs of the defendants with the reality of Trump's other trials in other jurisdictions. Four of the 19 defendants have already taken plea deals in the sweeping racketeering case stemming from a failed attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election. For the rest, prosecutors want to kick off a months-long trial almost a year after the initial indictments. That date would also be two weeks before Georgia voters can start requesting absentee ballots for the 2024 presidential race. For NPR News, I'm Stephen Fowler in Atlanta. For former First Lady Rosalind Carter has entered a hospice care facility at her Georgia home. Rural Bali with member station WABE reports it's been nearly six months since her dementia diagnosis was made public. Grandson Jason Carter says the former First Lady and former President Jimmy Carter are spending time with each other and their family. They also continue to ask for privacy while expressing gratitude for the outpouring of love and support. Over the years, Rosalind Carter has been known for her advocacy for mental health and caregivers. Back in February, Jimmy Carter entered hospice care at home as well, following several hospital stays. He is 99, she is 96. They've been married 77 years. For NPR News, I'm Raul Bally in Atlanta. IBM and European Union are the latest large entities to say so long to entrepreneur Elon Musk's social media platform X, the site formerly known as Twitter. IBM joining Apple, Oracle, and others who are opposed to what they say is hate speech on the site. On Wall Street, the Dow is up a point. This is NPR. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good evening. I'm Lisa Mullins. The U.S. Department of Education will investigate whether anti-Israel rhetoric has created a hostile environment for Jewish students at Wellesley College. As WBR's Max Larkin reports, it's part of a wave of campus conflicts set off by the Israel-Palestine war. In a dorm email last month, residential assistants wrote that there is no space for Zionism at Wellesley. Two organizations told federal education officials that amounted to discrimination. Julia Jassy runs Jewish on Campus, which co-drafted that complaint. She says criticism of Israel is not inherently anti-Semitic, but that some pro-Palestinian students have crossed the line this fall. When you're demonizing an entire group of people, when you're saying that any Israeli living in this land is a settler who deserves violence, that dehumanization is where that line is drawn. In a statement, Wellesley leaders welcomed the federal investigation and condemned anti-Semitism. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Max Larkin. Massachusetts nonprofits that help people with opioid use disorders are supporting an announcement from President Biden this week. After his meeting with Chinese leader Xi Jinping, Biden said the Chinese agreed to limit the flow of materials used to make fentanyl. Dan Gates is CEO of the AIDS Support Group of Cape Cod. He says it's important to look at how communities respond on a local scale. If you were to be able to tomorrow 
eliminate all fentanyl from the region, there would be a lot of people who are experiencing severe addiction to a substance that would need support and help. And so we really have to work on that level as well. The AIDS support group provides access to fentanyl test strips. Ridership on the MBTA's commuter rail has hit a post-pandemic high. D officials say ridership on the commuter rail last month was more than 90 percent of pre-pandemic levels. The Fairmont, Franklin and Rockport Newburyport lines saw the biggest month-to-month increases. The T says the jump is due in part to Halloween travel to Salem. State regulators caught nearly 200 minors in their latest crackdown against underage drinking. The statewide step by the Massachusetts Alcoholic Beverages Control Commission took place between Labor Day weekend and Halloween. 135 minors were accused of possessing or transporting alcohol. Another 56 were accused of having fake IDs. The commission also says 16 adults were caught buying alcohol for minors. 59 degrees now in the Boston area. Winds picking up tonight should stay right about where it is right now. A pretty mild night. Then for tomorrow, a strong wind rained through the morning hours a little bit into the afternoon. Temperatures in the mid-50s. Then for Sunday, sunny and dry, right about 50 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 6.07. WBUR supporters include Heather Sturt-Haga and Paul G. Haga supporting African Wildlife Foundation, working to ensure wildlife and wild lands thrive in modern Africa. Learn more at awf.org. It's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Coming up, a rare stamp recently sold at auction for a record $2 million. We learn what makes this one stamp, known as an inverted Jenny, worth so much. First... What will happen to Gaza after the war? That's one question that our colleague Steve Inski put to Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu in an interview this morning. They discussed a wide range of issues, and we're going to focus on one part of their conversation, what the future of Gaza may look like. Steve picks it up from here. What do you intend to do with Gaza once Israeli troops are fully in control on the ground there? We have two uh, main goals there. One is to uh, prevent uh, prevent things, uh, this threat from emerging. For that, we need to demilitarize Gaza. And the second thing we have to do is de-radicalize Gaza. It's like, what do you do when you, you beat the Nazi regime? Uh, well, you uh, make sure that uh, Germany is not, doesn't arm itself again, and you also make sure that Nazism is uh, removed. Same thing you did in the victory against Japan. You know, you, you won the victory, But you then also made sure that there was a cultural change in Japan. We need a cultural change uh, in any civilian administration in Gaza. It can't be committed to uh, funding terrorism. It has to be committed to fighting terrorism. When you say any civilian administration, Prime Minister, that seems to be the question. You've said you don't want the Palestinian Authority running Gaza, which would be the other major Palestinian organization other than Hamas. You don't want them running Gaza. Who else is there? Well... First of all, anyone who doesn't share Hamas's goals and who doesn't share Hamas's inculcation uh, of uh, teaching children, Palestinian children, that Israel has to be destroyed, uh, and that's their goal in life. I mean, that's what the uh, the Palestinian Authority is doing in the West Bank. It's teaching children, Palestinian children, that Israel has to be annihilated. They pay for slay. They pay the families of terrorists. Uh, for the murder of Jews, and the more Jews they murder, the more they get paid. This is not the people who can uh, work for peace. And you know, almost 40 days have passed, 
and the Palestinian leadership of, uh, of the Palestinian Authority, President Abbas, has yet to condemn this savagery. Referring, of course, to October 7th, when 1,200 people were killed, according to Israel's tally. Throughout the interview, Prime Minister Netanyahu often referred to post-World War II Germany as a possible roadmap for what he called the demilitarizing and de-radicalizing of Gaza. Steve picked up that thread. The question, of course, is the United States ended up keeping troops in Germany for generations. That's where you're heading here with, with Gaza? Well, I'm not sure of keeping troops inside. Uh, and in fact, uh, it's not particularly necessary. Gaza is very small. So the overriding military responsibility has to be with Israel for the foreseeable future. Because once you eliminate Hamas, and we have to eliminate Hamas, we have to beat these barbarians, otherwise this evil will spread. And it is uh, a great danger to everyone. But once we defeat Hamas, we have to make sure that there's no new Hamas, no resurgence of terrorism. And right now, the only force that is able to, uh, to secure that is Israel. So for the foreseeable future, Israeli overall military responsibility. But there also has to be a civilian government there. But and you, but you haven't said who that civilian government would be, sir. Well, I think I know who it can't be. It can't okay. be people who are committed I to wanna, if uh, I... funding terrorism and, and inculcating terrorism. Let, let me say this, though. Very briefly, sir. That you had, you had this, we, we can give Gaza a different future. You say, how will this generation have a different future? Just the way the German people had a different future, the Japanese people had a different future, because you eliminated these toxic regimes, these tyrannies, these heartless monstrosities, and you replace them with something good. And what we need is something that is, we replace that with something that cares for the future of peace between Israel and the Palestinians, that cares to rebuild Gaza that cares to eliminate this terrorist tyranny that uh, subjugated the people of Gaza, I think that's the only hope for peace and the only hope for Palestinians. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu there speaking with Morning Edition host Steve Inskeep. Let's parse what he did and did not say about the future of Gaza with NPR's Greg Myrie, who is in Tel Aviv. Hey, Greg. Hi, Ari. So many references there to World War II. How well does this comparison actually apply to the current war? There are, are really a lot of differences, but actually there's a more recent Israeli war that does seem very relevant today. Back in 1982, Israel invaded southern Lebanon to drive out militant Palestinians who were attacking northern Israel. Now, Israel did push out those Palestinians, but in their place very soon after came the militant group Hezbollah. Israel then found itself stuck in southern Lebanon for 18 years fighting Hezbollah until Israel unilaterally withdrew in 2000. Today, Hezbollah is stronger than ever, and it's trading fire with Israel across its northern border. Uh, Israel does have the region's most powerful military, but it still needs to find political solutions, and the Palestinians say that would be statehood. And to that persistent question about what the civilian government of Gaza would look like, what are the options for who can run Gaza? Well, in short, Israel just hasn't provided an answer. You heard uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu sort of uh, evading Steve's question there. Netanyahu says Hamas will never be allowed to run Gaza again. He also says he doesn't want the Palestinian Authority to run Gaza. The Palestinian Authority runs the West Bank, but it's ineffectual and unpopular. And it even says it won't go to Gaza on the back of an Israeli tank. Ultimately, a political solution will involve Palestinians. Palestinians ruling Gaza, but Netanyahu seems to be ruling out the options that exist today. 
Well, whether or not the leader of Israel's government is willing to spell it out in an NPR interview, what does Israel seem likely to do? What, what are they likely to be planning right now? So we've spoken to a lot of Israeli officials, and there's kind of this vague talk about having the international community come in and perhaps be part of some transitional phase. But outsiders just haven't shown any interest in in running the territory. Arab countries don't want to come into Gaza and serve as an enforcer. The United Nations does things like provide food and health care and schooling, but it simply isn't equipped to govern. So for Israel, the real risk is getting stuck in Gaza, even if it decides at some point it wants to leave. And Netanyahu did not say a lot about the humanitarian situation. Can his government continue to resist international pressure as conditions in Gaza grow even more dire? This is going to be very hard because of these daily images of of the very real Palestinian hardship in Gaza. Already more than 11,000 are dead, tens of thousands wounded, according to Gaza officials. Food and water are increasingly hard to find. The World Food Program says Gaza is just getting a tiny fraction of the food it needs. There's a fuel shortage that's shutting down water systems, communications, hospitals. Uh, You see images of people burning wood in the street just to cook a meal. Israel is now going to allow enough fuel for the UN to run sewage and desalination plants. But this kind of piecemeal approach is, is not going to solve the larger crisis. So no matter what... What happens on the battlefield, Israel is going to face sustained pressure to do more, much more, to deal with the humanitarian crisis. That's NPR's Greg Myrie in Tel Aviv. Thank you. Sure thing, Ari. A first-class U.S. postage stamp will set you back 66 cents these days, which you know, might seem expensive to anyone who remembers cheaper postage. But a stamp that's more than a century old in mint condition and also happens to be a historic misprint, well, that will set you back a lot more than 66 cents. Well, the stamp that we sold for $2 million is the inverted Jenny, and it is the icon of stamp collecting. That is Scott Treppel, president of Siegel Auction Galleries in New York. And the proud new owner of that rare inverted Jenny stamp is a real estate developer named Charlie Hack. So what makes this stamp worth a record $2 million? The inverted Jenny is the error version of a stamp which at the time was very important because it was the first stamp for the world's first regularly scheduled government airmail service. At the center of the stamp is a picture of the kind of Curtis biplane nicknamed Jenny that would be used for this new airmail service. As postal officials rushed to print the new stamps in time for those first postal flights in 1918, a mistake was made. Some of the stamps were printed with the plane flying upside down, which Treppel says is understandable. Planes were still a relatively new form of transportation at the time. People weren't familiar with what they looked like, and so... The inverted plane on the stamp slipped through the inspectors, slipped through the clerk at the post office. And uh, even he said, you know, look, don't blame me. I don't know what a plane looks like. So I I didn't recognize it when I sold it. A single sheet of 100 inverted jennies was sold before anyone caught the mistake. The stamp that was sold this week at auction was one of them. It's known as Position 49, based on its placement on that original sheet. So yeah, other inverted jennies do exist, but Treble says this one is extra special because it's in really good condition after being in storage for decades. It had been held by probably three generations of the same owners and uh, hidden away. So it never was exposed to light. 
The colors were beautiful. The paper was bright. The back of the stamp, the gum, had never been hinged and put into an album. Keep in mind, Treppel is a preeminent expert in this field. He says he's handled the sale of 66 of the 100 stamps on that original misprint sheet. And position 49 is tops, in his opinion. We grade stamps from 1 to 100 in terms of the centering of the design with the perforations around it. And this one is a 95, and there is no better. There's no 98, there's no 100, this 95 is the best that any Jenny will ever get. Scott Treppel of Siegel Auction Galleries in New York. By the way, he says stamp collectors wondered for years where inverted Jenny 49 was, so that mystery is solved for now. But there is still one more big question mark for inverted Jenny fans. There's still one stamp out there that was stolen in the 1950s. It was part of a block of four. Uh, There's still one. Uh, the upper right stamp of the block, which has yet to emerge from hiding, but um, one day somebody will try to sell it. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Whether you're traveling, grocery shopping, or doing laundry this weekend, start things off with 90.9 WBUR. We've got starships, the search for a missing artist, and then wait, wait at 10 o'clock. Tap and listen anywhere on the WBUR app. WBUR supporters include Boston Early Music Festival with their Grammy-winning Chamber Opera Series on Thanksgiving weekend in Boston, November 25th and 26th. BEMF.org. The major averages on Wall Street cruised to a third week of gains. Today, the Dow picked up a small fraction of a percent. S&P rose a little more than a tenth of a percent. The Nasdaq rose a little less than a tenth of a percent. The unemployment rate in Massachusetts remains below 3 percent, at least it did last month. State officials say the jobless rate was 2.8 percent. That is up slightly compared to September, but more than a full percentage point lower than the current national rate. Officials say the state has gained more than 77,000 jobs in the past year. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink, sponsoring Discovery Museum's more than 2,500 traveling science workshops for Massachusetts schools, and Burton's Grill and Bar, with modern American cuisine and craft cocktails for family meals, business lunches, drinks with friends, and group events. Gluten-free and kids' menus available, too. Turn your old vehicle into new news. Support the programs you love by donating your car or boat to WBUR. Details at WBUR.org slash cars. After a mighty fine fall day, we've got a mixed bag for the weekend. Tonight should be unseasonably warm, staying right about where it is right now, 59 degrees. And then rain is likely tomorrow, tapering off to sprinkles by early afternoon. Some strong winds, highs in the mid-50s, falling to the mid-40s by late afternoon. Should clear out and dry up for Sunday. Sunny skies, temperatures about 50 degrees. This is WBUR at 621. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Davis Mom. Taking care of your business from startup to sale. Learn more at davismalm.com. D-A-V-I-S-M-A-L-M. And semester off. Integrating wellness, mental health, and academia in a compassionate and structured setting where college-age students and high school grads can form friendships, experience deep personal growth, and boost their confidence. Spring semester starts January 22nd. Semesteroff.com.
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Ari Shapiro. And I'm Elsa Chang. There's a big deadline coming up on Thanksgiving in the state of New York. November 23rd, that's next Thursday, is the last day of a one-year window when adult survivors of sexual assault may sue their alleged abusers, regardless of when the abuse allegedly occurred. Earlier this year, that window allowed E. Jean Carroll to bring and win damages in a lawsuit against Donald Trump, which was related to an incident in the mid-1990s. The window also just allowed the R&B singer Cassie to sue her former long-term partner, the music mogul Sean Combs, also known as Diddy. Her lawsuit alleges rape and a pattern of abuse. A state law in New York known as the Adult Survivors Act, which was signed just last year, makes all of this possible. And here to talk more about that law is attorney Marianne Wong. She's represented many clients seeking justice for sexual abuse before and after this law was passed. And she's with us now. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Elsa. Well, thanks for being with us. So I am curious, how much are you and other lawyers seeing an uptick in clients bringing lawsuits under this law as this deadline is quickly approaching? There's definitely been um, a significant increase and a lot of people just calling and trying to find out what their rights are and, you know, deciding for themselves whether or not they want to pursue something. But it has been really um, a remarkable period of time. And do you have a sense of how much of a difference this law has made in terms of how many more lawsuits have been filed the last year compared to previous years when statutes of limitations could not be circumvented? There's definitely been a very significant increase in filings during this year. Many others are empowered to confront and threaten either their abuser or sometimes institutions behind that abuser to try to resolve the matter even before filing. So there are also a number of cases against institutions. So for example, there was a recent filing against Columbia University because there's a doctor who was employed by their healthcare system for years who engaged in abuse. For instance, under the Adult Survivors Act, many of those survivors were able to file cases against mm-hmm. Columbia. Can we talk about why this law was passed in the first place? What were the shortcomings that people saw and wanted to address by opening up this additional one-year window? The answer is really that it was it's a recognition that victims of sexual assault and survivors of sexual trauma were gaslit or told that they should let bygones be bygones. So for so long, the law had draconian limits on how women could pursue justice. And so even though that has changed over time and there has been an extension of the statute of limitations over time, this is a recognition that women from decades ago who may not have had the wherewithal or the understanding or were still so wrapped up in their own grief and shame and trauma. from the assault that they can now examine it and ponder it and consider bringing their perpetrators to justice and give them that power of that choice. Exactly. But is an additional just one-year window enough? You raise many, many important reasons why survivors of sexual assault struggle with coming forward. So is just adding on a one-year window enough to address that larger challenge? I don't think it is enough. I think that lawmakers do understand that there are a lot more considerations than just immediately requiring somebody to meet a deadline. And I do think that going forward, I'm hopeful that both New York and other states will be more understanding and either open more windows or change statutes limitations going forward. Marianne Wong of the law firm Cutie Hecker Wong, thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thank you. In Argentina, this Sunday's presidential runoff is like no other in recent memory. A far-right libertarian has shaken up the race. He sports a chainsaw at rallies and pledges to radically slash state spending and ditch the national currency. And then there's the incumbent party's candidate, the current economy minister. He's still in the running, even as Argentina's economy hits new lows and inflation soars. As NPR's Kerry Kahn reports, the polls are too close to call. Nicolás Reyes says it's time for a radical change. La dirigencia no ve la bronca de la gente. La gente está muy enojada. Those in charge just don't get how angry people are, says the 20-year-old political science student. We found a quiet corner in the cafeteria at the University of La Matanza, where he comes to study. The place is packed with students chatting and sharing mate, Argentina's famous herbal tea drink. Some are trying to read. La juventud argentina, debido a esta crisis, nos tenemos que dedicar a estudiar y trabajar. Because of the crisis, Argentina's youth have to work just to be able to study, he says. This is why Javier Millet is winning over so many young people, he adds. The far-right libertarian rails loudly against the status quo, building a loyal following through social media and rock music-infused rallies, with a generation of young Argentines left out of the job market and staring at a future stuck in their parents' homes. Me ha costado represalias, me ha costado peleas. Reyes says being a young conservative hasn't been easy, especially here in La Matanza, one of the 24 boroughs that make up what's called the Conurbano. This is the industrial and impoverished core of cities ringing the capital, Buenos Aires. It's long been a stronghold of the ruling Peronist party and stigmatized for its poverty, says Guillermo Galeano, who's 38 and runs an Instagram account called The Walking Conurbano. Son los habitantes del Conurbano, con su peso demográfico, los que eligen al presidente. He says don't underestimate the Conurbano, with nearly 12 million residents, about a quarter of the country's population and nearly a third of all voters, we elect the president. And although the Peronist candidate Sergio Massa easily won here in last month's primary elections, Javier Millet and his angry discourse has gained followers. That has Analia Bocella worried. I met her at a large park just outside the Conurbano. Está re lindo, los baños están limpios y es, es gratis. <laughs> it's pretty here, the bathrooms are clean, and most of all it's free, she chuckles. The single mom and elementary school teacher strolls past couples dancing tango, holding hands with her 11-year-old daughter, Muriel. She says it's a respite from the cramped tiny house they share with their mom in La Matanza. She's voting for the current Peronist Party's candidate, Sergio Massa, but not happily. Look, I'm really frustrated. I'm 43 years old and there are so many things I thought I would have achieved by now, she says, especially after working so hard for so many years. But as bad as things are, she's really afraid they could get much worse if Malay wins. Kids come to my classes hungry, in really bad shape. They're just steps from living on the streets, she says. They couldn't survive if Malay makes his drastic cuts. But Nicolás Reyes, the 20-year-old university student, says he hopes Argentines don't listen to the fear-mongering and vote for change. 
He says it makes no sense to keep doing the same thing. That's clearly not working. La batalla electoral está en el conurbano bonaerense. And he adds that battle between the same old or change will be decided here in the conurbano. Kerry Khan, NPR News, La Matanza, Argentina. This is NPR News. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by The Huntington, in a co-production with Speakeasy Stage presents The Band's Visit, the Tony Award-winning musical about surprise connections, shared humanity, and love of music, coming to the Boston stage for the first time ever from now through December 10th at The Huntington Theater. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. And Johnson & Wales. Think you know Jay Wu? From engineering to graphic design, let Johnson & Wales surprise you. More at jwu.edu.